Um, the Torrances are going to take care of the Overlook for us this winter. I'm outlining a new writing project. Five months of peace is just what I want. It's typical of you to create a problem like this when I'm really into my work. Johnny, welcome back to the Essential Films Podcast, a podcast devoted to the discussion of the greatest movies ever made or the essential films. I'm Adolfo Acosta, and I am joined by my co-host, Mr. Mark Espinoza. What's going on, everybody? Happy Halloween. Uh, this is what, our third? I, this is our third or fourth Halloween special in a row. I think it's our fourth, because we did Halloween the first year, and then we did... Frankenstein, Psych- right? That we did Psycho, then Frankenstein. So this is number four, yeah. Okay, awesome. Unless uh, there's one I'm missing. I can't think of one I'm missing, though. Forward to it, especially in this uh, different uh, Halloween 2020 we're looking at right now, where especially in my neck of the woods, there's probably going to be no Halloween and no trick-or-treaters for the first time in God knows, I, in the, I can't even remember. So uh, I'm glad to be able to do this now and kind of get my mind off of that stuff. So I'm just, I'm glad to be here. You know, it's funny, like, they're, we're still going to do trick-or-treating in our neighborhood. They, they've, like, they've approved it. Like, then the, the city council has approved it in our neighborhood. But we'll see, because now Illinois just recently got another spike. So now we'll see if that stays, uh, because I don't know. <laughs> yep, actually, in my hometown of Newark, New Jersey, it's actually kind of made national news somewhat that we're getting a spike in cases as well. So, in fact, where I work on Monday, the, we had people from the city come down to my job and give us like notices from the mayor saying, that, OK, starting tonight, like all these restrictions are going into place, like all non-essentials close at eight. That's uh, it, it's crazy, you know, um, and then the winter's not looking so good either from what they're saying. So if there if cases are already spiking now in like the early fall, imagine like, you know, in a couple months when it's really cold. Uh, and people are forced to be inside. <laughs> yeah, it's uh... yeah, <clears throat> yeah. It's a uh, it'll be interesting. Um, but uh, enough about the the current world problems because we've got some other 
supernatural spooky problems to deal with today. And and uh, as you as you told me before we start before you started the call, we should probably Third get right into it because um, uh, we've got a lot to talk about with this movie. Yes, and and I promise next episode I will be going into. I don't know how briefly I can get into it, but very briefly or as briefly as I can do it. I'll get into that uh, Lindsay Baker Giallo set that I talked about last episode. Because I got into the first movie so far in that set, which was Orgasmo. I have not watched the other ones yet. But by the time we do the next episode, I'll have a complete review of that set, which I'm very excited to talk about. Because that first one <laughs> was pretty wacky. All right. Uh, that, is a, that is a tease for the next time. All right. So let's, uh, let's get into it. So as uh, we... As we tease the very top of the hour, uh, at the very top of the show, our episode this week, we'll, we, we will be discussing The Shining, uh, the Stanley Kubrick horror classic. Uh, this is for the month, our month of uh, our Halloween month in October, our Halloween episode. Um, Mark, what is your first experience with Kubrick's Shining? So, I might be committing a bit of blasphemy here, but here's the thing with The Shining. This was probably, it was one of those movies that kind of just eluded me all these years, for the most part. Not because I didn't care for it, because, I mean, I've always caught it in bits and pieces throughout my life. I've never been able to sit down and actually watch the whole thing. Now, this has been kind of a recurring thing with some of the movies we've talked about on this show, um, where I would see it there, and then one day I'd finally just sit down and finally see it. From start to finish. Now, I remember the first time. Oh, I don't know if this was the first time, but I remember one of the more notable times that I remember, like thinking about The Shining or seeing something from The Shining that made me want to watch The Shining. Was if you remember Twister, the scene at the drive-in theater where um, the tornado hits, the Twister hits, and they're actually playing The Shining on uh, at the drive-in as. Posters like hitting them, you know, it's right at the part, the here's Johnny part, right? When he's like, you know, hitting, uh, swinging the axe through the bathroom door and Shelly Duvall's like there screaming and everything like right as, right as she starts screaming, the twister kind of takes the screen away, which is a pretty awesome visual, but I mean, twister's neither here nor there at this point, but Hey, you know what? I like twister. It's a stupid movie, but I I like it. I, I, yeah, it's dumb, but I, I, you know, it's one of those movies that I enjoyed when I was younger, and I have, like, that nostalgia for it, even though it's just completely, like, nonsensical and stupid. Oh, eight-year-old me liked it, so there you go. No, actually, no, I was ten years old when that came out. Ten years old. Um, anyway, so it was, that's probably, like, I don't know if it was the first time, like I said, but it was, like, I think one of the more prominent times where I like I saw a clip or something of The Shining and it made me want to watch The Shining. But, and like I said at the beginning, I kind of teased this already, I might be committing a little bit of blasphemy. The first time that I actually sat down and watched the whole thing from start to this, three years ago at Alamo Drafthouse when they did the uh, Stanley Kubrick um, celebration for that year. So 2017, they did a big Stanley Kubrick thing where like every quarter they would show uh, a Stanley Kubrick film and do like a special screening of it with like merchandise and stuff like that. Um, I talked about this unfortunate perspective before, but I remember that, in fact, the first uh, time I ever went to Alamo Draft House in Brooklyn, my very first visit there was for one of the Kubrick screenings, which was a clock. And then was 2001 Space Odyssey. Um, I did not get to see it 
at Alamo because when they screened that movie, I was actually in Florida for WrestleMania. So I, I ended up missing that screening. But the third one was the Full Metal Jacket one, which I met Matthew Modine there because he kind of showed up out of nowhere, uh, surprised everybody, and he signed autographs after the screening, which was so cool. We got to talk to him for a little bit. And then the fourth one, which I think was in November, I think it was November, was The Shining. So they had, like, the special screening. They did the T-shirt that came with the ticket. You know, they went – they awesome. And it was at that screening was where I finally got to sit down and watch The Shining start to finish for the very first time. Now, it, and that was just three years ago. Um, and it's funny because – I bought the they, – they had a, a Stanley Kubrick set that had all his movies from uh, Spartacus up to Eyes Wide Shut. That came out, I think, in 2012, 2013. I can't remember which one. But that, that set is now out of print. And I ended up buying it for about, I think, it was 25 or $30, uh, which I was following closely at that time. Not so much anymore, but – uh, it was a, it was a steal for what I bought it for, and The Shining was in that set, obviously. But I just never got around to plopping it in that Blu-ray player because you know, like you and I do sometimes, Adolfo, like we buy more than we can watch it at a given point. So it's one of those things where, you know, I started watching this. I started with Lolita, with Spartacus. I went through to 2001, you know, and then I just like you know, I got other things. I got other sets. I got other movies, and then they kind of just fell by the wayside. That Alamo screening three years ago was the first time I actually sat down and watched it from beginning to end. And it's the the, the one thing that I, I think amazed me the most about that experience was the fact that even, you know, well, at the time it was like 37 years later, but not like, well, 40 years later, it still manages to scare people. And it's weird thinking about it because, you know, going back and reading some of those contemporary reviews to kind of get ready for this episode – a lot of the critics in 1980 didn't think this was, you know, and it, even I think Eber was one of the ones that said, oh, you know, it's not really that scary. But uh, tell that to the people that watched it in 2017. You know, there's there's not a lot of jump scares, obviously, because it wasn't really the era of jump scares. But, like, people were, like, jumping out of their seats in certain scenes. They were, like, screaming. They were, like, and I, and I love getting that visceral reaction from an audience like that. Like, when they're really into a movie. And they just kind of get sucked in and they just all their emotions come out, especially during a, a really well-made horror film like The Shining. You know, you get like raw reactions from people. It's a testament to how powerful, you know, even 40 years later, this movie is. And, you know, it's one of those uh, screenings that like with a lot of screenings at Alamo that I'll never forget because, you know, it's one thing just seeing this on your own. It's another thing seeing it with a crowd like that. And it kind of just enhances the whole experience for you. Yeah, we're going to get to the the criticisms that it got at the time, including some ridiculous ones that it that uh, that I'm sure you'll you know what I'm getting at uh, with it being kind of named some of the one of the worst things of the year. But um, but uh, yeah, that that's interesting that you that it took you that long to watch it. Like, so is it so, was it just like what was your were you hesitating or was it just like eh, I don't feel like it? Like, what was it? And I don't know if it's necessarily either of those things. It's just one of those things where I just I never got around to it. Like I've always been wanting to watch it prior to then, but then, like I said, either something would come up or I wouldn't. You know, I, I'd buy other movies and then I'd kind of get pushed to the side. Like oh, I'll watch it later. Oh, I'll watch it later. And then later became like a year, two years, three. I'd catch it on TV every now and then. Like I'd I'd catch bits and pieces. Like I said, like whether it's on, I think on HBO or wherever. You know, they'd be showing it, 
and I'd watch maybe like the beginning or I'd watch the middle, I'd watch the end, but never together in one sitting until that, that one night in Alamo. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I had, um, I had a different experience with it. Uh, whenever I was, uh, I, I remember seeing this kid or seeing this film, not as a kid. I remember seeing like it on TV as a kid, like seeing like bits and pieces of it and just kind of knowing it was scary, but not really like taking it in knowing enough to like, you know, I was a little kid, so I was scared by things. So I just didn't really watch it. But I remember the first time I saw it in full was in high school. Um, and it was showing on TNT like late at night on like Halloween or like close to Halloween. Um, and I was like maybe 17 or eight, 18 years old at the time. And I sat there and watched it and like it started, it aired at like midnight or something creepy. And, um, and, and I was there like until like two or three in the morning, you know, with commercials. Uh, and I, and that's when the first time I saw it. And I remember even being like a teenager who was supposed to be like a tough guy, uh, just being thoroughly creeped out by the film. Um, <laughs> and then ever since then, I've probably, um, I don't know, I'd say I probably watched it maybe at least 15 or 20 times since then, just because I, it's a, it's a go-to Halloween movie, right? Like it's a go-to movie to watch on Halloween. Um, so I, even if we wouldn't have done it for this podcast, I would have probably watched it anyway. Um, just cause it's, it's a good atmosphere movie for Halloween. So yeah, I, I've just, and it was actually, no, no I was going to say what, I, what's funny about, you know, this whole thing with me and the shining is that I actually remember um, when I was a kid and they and the miniseries came on ABC, I actually watched that with my mother because my mother was really is she's a huge Stephen King fan. So she'll watch like all the adaptations that, you know, either theatrical or the made for TV ones. And I remember like watching The Shining with her when that came on, like I think it was 97, the three nights or four nights, whatever it was uh, that they showed it and really getting into it. But it never it didn't drive me to want to watch the Kubrick Shining, obviously, but. Um, it was enough to get me at least interested in the story itself. Yeah, it, the 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 made for TV version. I was I, I tried really hard to watch it for this for this uh, for to prepare for our show this time, but it's not anywhere. You can't find that thing anywhere. It's only it's not on any streaming service like, and it's not available for digital purchase or rent. Right, um, the only way you can get it. Um, there's no DVD release of just that movie, but if you looked on Amazon, there is a DVD release of like with it, um, like 1990s it, the Stephen King, the 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 original uh, Tim Curry one, the the 1997 Shining, and then a remake of Salem's Lot, and I was like, and it was like gonna be like fifteen dollars for this DVD. I was like, ah. I don't care that much to, to buy this thing. So, and even then I can't guarantee I'm going to be able to watch it in time for the podcast. So I was like, I'm not paying for it. Besides like, so I actually even did like a, like an unofficial poll on Facebook going, should I watch this thing? Should, uh, before, you know, and, and most people were like, you don't need to watch it. It's bad. So, um, but, uh, yeah, I, I, what did you think of it at the time? Do you have, do you, or do you even remember it? I mean, I barely remember. I I remember like the beginning, and I remember the end. Um, and I obviously like I haven't seen it at all since then, so I can't really give my true feelings or my how I would feel right now. But as a kid, I remember really enjoying it. Well, yeah, I really I have not seen it. I have not seen it at all, so I can't really comment on it. I just know that it does not uh, does not have good reviews. 
Um, well, Stephen King liked it, and, and you know, to him, that's that's all that matters. Yeah, let's we'll get into that in a little bit. Um, that that's in my notes, but um, so let's let's hop into the film. Um, as uh, as we were mentioning earlier, it is directed by Stephen King, or not directed by Stephen King, by Stanley Kubrick, uh, with a screenplay by Kubrick and Diane Johnson, based on the book by Stephen King. Uh, and it stars Jack Nicholson, Shelley Duvall, Scatman Crothers, and Danny Lloyd, with cinematography by John Alcott. Um, some pre-production notes on this. Uh, what one of the things that you know we'll, we'll get into during the plot breakdown, but uh, this is one of the first movies uh, to incorporate Steadicam. And, uh, and when we did our Rocky episode, we we talked about how like Steadicam was like. It wasn't the first movie that used it. It was like maybe the second movie that used it, but it, like not many people had used it since since Rocky. And this is like still very early in the Steadicam uh, technology. And uh, yeah, you can you can see Steadicam all over this movie. Of course, man. Like, and um, the guy that created Steadicam, I keep forgetting the guy's name, but uh, he was uh, he actually helped out uh, on The Shining. Like, he was one of a. I guess the assistants you'd call I'm actually helped Kubrick out on the set to get like the shots that he wanted, you know, with this new technology. And he even claimed to say at one point, I'm paraphrasing, but basically, you know, he kind of taught me how to use what I, you know, what I created, my own invention. He taught me new ways like to, you know, to to shoot and to innovate using, you know, this technology. And, you know, and he was very grateful, you know, for the experience of working with Kubrick because I could give like kind of open his eyes to like more possibilities that this technology can give us. Yeah. And, and it's, I mean, it's used very inventively throughout the whole film, giving us like a lot of iconic shots. Um, some, some other, uh, uh, some other kind of notes here that I have that um, interestingly enough that um, the Grady twins in the book were not twins. They were just sisters, but for some reason, that I, I couldn't find any particular reason for it um, that Kubrick changed them to twins in the film, which you know technically makes it a little creepier. Um, like if you yeah. than if they were just like in the apparently they were originally supposed to be like eight and ten years old, um, so there would have been like a difference in height and and, and stuff. But making them twins, I think. Um, makes it a little bit creepier and it and it has become a trope right like it's something that's been uh kind of uh parodied over and over and over again throughout the years the of the twins so uh, it, it's, a, it's an interesting thing that they changed yeah i mean it, it, i don't want to say that the shining at least kubrick's the shining the trope of the creepy twins but it definitely ingrained it into popular culture i would say because when you when you think of like evil twins or like when they reference like evil twins they're referencing the shining you know 90 percent of the time right um so the reason that this film came about uh is that kubrick um had in the in the mid seventies had had filmed a movie called Barry Lyndon, which is a great film. There's a great Criterion release on it. Um, beautiful film to look at, beautiful cinematography, but it was a massive failure. Um, it, it got nominated for a bunch of Oscars, but didn't win. I don't think it won any. Maybe won a couple technical, but I'm not sure. But didn't win any of like the major ones, uh, and it was not a financial success. So Kubrick 
uh, basically decided for his next film, he wanted to do something that was commercially successful. Um, so he decided to, to dip his feet into the horror genre. And uh, there is a there's a uh, uh, kind of an urban legend as to how he how he picked the how he picked The Shining as his book. Um, apparently, his secretary he told his secretary to go out and buy a bunch of horror books uh, and then bring them to his office. And then uh, she said that every now every couple of minutes, every like five ten minutes, she would hear a thump because it was Kubrick throwing the book against the wall after reading the first couple pages, knowing that it was not a good book. And then after a while, she heard that it stopped and realized that. Uh, that he had finally picked the book and it was The Shining by Stephen King. <laughs> yes, I I did read that uh that little excerpt that little it's, it's interesting like I, I'm you know I'm I'm reading about that and then I'm just imagining like you know the secretary just hearing like the thumps on the wall you know like every like I guess what she I don't know how often she heard it but you know she heard it like every I guess half hour or so like oh there's another one oh there's another one that's not gonna get made oh there's another one that he hates so I <laughs> just imagining that in my head just that scene playing out is it's pretty funny yeah it, it's one of those things like because Kubrick was kind of an eccentric nut like you can believe it but it's also the kind of thing that you're like. I don't know. It could be something that someone could make up just because he's kind of crazy and and it's easy to believe, you know. So Nick Jack Nicholson was the uh, first choice for for Jack Torrance, um, but uh, there were other actors that were considered, uh, including Robert De Niro, which would have been interesting, Robin Williams and Harrison Ford, and all of those guys were uh, were nixed by Stephen King, who apparently had some sort of creative input in the film. Apparently not at all, because he didn't like Jack Nicholson either. Yeah, well. <laughs> uh, and we'll get, uh, yeah, because apparently he, the reason he didn't like Nicholson was because Nicholson had, ju- had you know, only a few years earlier had done uh, One Fool with a Cuckoo's Nest, where he was, you know, portraying kind of a crazy character. And King thought it would be more um, unnerving to get like a kind of a, like a more kind of buttoned down actor. I think he mentioned uh, Christopher Reeve. Um, or uh, I forget who the other actor was that he mentioned, um, who could like start the movie off as uh, John like, very Voight was normal. one of them too that he mentioned. Which one? Uh, John Voight. John Voight, yeah. Who, who could start off the movie like kind of normal and and, and balanced, and by the end, like, it would be more unnerving to see them kind of unravel throughout the film, which would have been an e- interesting way to take it. But uh, it's hard to like not imagine uh, Nicholson in this role. Um, of course, but he kind of had a point, bro, because. Like just Nicholson just has that creepy face about him. So he's like, he he walks into the interview with Allman, and you can tell like from his face, and it's not really his fault. It's just that's just how he looks. He looks like a crazy guy, which made him perfect for the Joker later on. But it's like, you know, he just has that face. Yeah, I mean, he does kind of have an interesting crazy face. I mean, that is true. But I mean, yeah, it's it, 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 I could see that point, but also like. It just makes it work a little better, you know. I, I think that Nicholson makes yeah. it, makes it work better, um, because you know, like it's it's kind of like it's the crazies kind of hiding there the whole time, you know. Right. So um, this movie was um, kind—I don't want to say cursed, but it was a very arduous uh, a production. Apparently, the the shooting took about a year to do, um, and one of the things that that made it a little more difficult was that apparently Kubrick shot it in chronological order, um, which is something that a lot of films don't do. Most films are shot, 
out of order because based on you know <clears throat> availability of sets availability of actors you know you know and if if you know you're gonna have two scenes in one location you know it makes sense to just do those two scenes back to back even if they're not chronologically in the same place because you know it just makes more sense that way so right it, it makes sense to 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 shoot out of order based on what logistics are but kubrick's specifically shot this film in chronological order i guess to get the uh to really feel like the like the the cabin fever and the you know the madness kind of sink in with all the actors so much so that uh some of the actors weren't uh, weren't big fans of kubrick after all was said and done well i think i read of, of one uh well not necessarily one but Certain uh, shooting days that went from like 9 a.m. to like 10.30 p.m. And, you know, having worked a similar day just this week, it was, I'm just like, ugh. at that point, you're just tired, you're, you're annoyed, you're angry with everybody, you just want to go home. So I can imagine was a lot of the crew. And act- yeah, and it was, I think the scene you're talking about is the, is the bar scene uh, with, with Lloyd, the bartender, um, that went that long, that and you know, some people might think, um, "Oh, the, who cares? They're just actors. It's not a real job." But the thing is that you have to take into to consideration is is that, like, I've been on shoots like that uh, in, in my own professional career, and it it might seem weird, but just standing around and waiting for stuff to happen can be kind of exhausting. You, if you're just if you're yeah. literally just standing on your feet, like waiting for stuff to happen, especially if you're dealing with gear or, or whatever, or if you're an actor and you kind of stay in a, stay in a, a certain emotional state to like deliver lines, things like that. It's, it's not, it's not necessarily easy. It sounds like it might be easy. It might be like a cushy job, but it's, it's not necessarily, um, and I'm not saying it's like digging ditches or working construction, but it is harder than people might, might think it is. Shelley Duvall <laughs> specifically, um, oh boy. did, didn't get along with with Kubrick. I know. So one of the things we'll circle back to her in a second. One thing I did want to mention with with uh, Nicholson was he started getting uh, kind of annoyed with everything because they kept changing the script on a daily basis to the point where he wouldn't memorize his lines until like ten minutes before they started shooting because then like he knew that that was basically the last script change because they weren't going to you know. So uh, that's interesting that he. That, I mean that he's that good that he could memorize lines that quickly, but it's just interesting that that they had so much, they changed so much during the during the production. Um, but yeah, Shelley Duvall. Um, yeah, I read that and I'm like, I was just amazed at, at the guy's talent. Like you know, it said something to the effect of you know he would learn you know the the lines that he needed like you know immediately within a few minutes, and I'm like, you know, look at the look at this guy like. I can barely memorize what I'm going to do tomorrow at work, you know, uh, within a timely manner, let alone, like, this guy mem- memorizing, like, a whole dialogue for a scene within a matter of minutes. That's, that's you know, a testament to his, his talent. Yeah, and it's sad because uh, apparently that's why he's no longer really working anymore um, is because he's not – I think he's, like, semi-retired because he can't – he has trouble remembering lines now. So like yeah. it, it, that's really a shame because it's you know he's one of our great actors but um, but that's kind of the reasons like you don't see him much anymore if at all is because he he can't he has trouble remembering his lines. Yeah. Um. But yeah. So let's circle back to uh, Shelley Duvall. Shelley Duvall uh, infamously did not get along with Kubrick because um, 
Kubrick was, you know, it, it's funny. We 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 can talk about how much of a brilliant filmmaker Kubrick was, but sometimes with a lot of artists in life, uh, if you are a brilliant artist, in this case a filmmaker, sometimes you can be kind of an ass, and that's what Kubrick was. Um, another great example of that is Alfred Hitchcock, the way he treated some of his actors and actresses, uh, specifically the one I can always think of is Tippi Hedren in The Birds. But, um, yeah. but yeah, the way he treated Shelley Duvall in the set uh, basically stressed her out and caused her so much anxiety um, that she physically became ill. Um, she lost hair <laughs> from her head, and she slowed down her acting career after The Shining. She did appear in stuff throughout the 80s, but then after a while, she ended up just disappeared. She's not dead. She's alive, but she's just nowhere. Like, you can't see her really anywhere. Um, but, she, yeah, she didn't get along with him. And it's funny because I was just wa- – today I watched um, – I was watching Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And uh, yeah. I, I was thinking to myself as I was watching, you know, like the last 20 minutes – that uh, Marilyn Burns gives one of the best scared as crap performances in movies because the actress herself was basically scared to death because they were going way too method at the, at the during that during those scenes in Texas Chainsaw Massacre they were like actually hurting her and cutting her and stuff um, where and it reminded me of of the of Shelley Duvall here because she puts on like a a really good performance towards the end of the film where she's just completely scared out of her mind. And that's probably just informed by the fact that she was being psychologically abused by Kubrick. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, she, I mean, I, we'll get to it later, but I think her performance is very understated. A lot of the times, like they don't want to give her, you know, the credit that I think she deserves for, not only the performance she gives, but like under the um, enormous pressure that she was under to give that performance in the situation that she was in professionally. So, you know, we'll, like I said, we'll talk about it more later. Like the later scene, like you were talking about, but uh, yeah, it's, it's just, it's crazy. Like what she went through and still managed to give a performance like that. Yeah. Okay. So, um, I have a couple other things, but they're going to make more sense to talk about during the actual plot breakdown. So, uh, unless you have anything else, let's get let's get into the movie. Uh, not off the top of my head. Yeah, so we can, let's just get into it then. All right. So we open up our movie with uh, some creepy, like, oboe or something kind of music as we kind of ha- do these helicopter shots through the through the Rocky Mountains, some really cool-looking shots uh, through the Rocky Mountains, and we see, like, a lone car kind of driving along the road, and uh, we, will so- we soon find out that this is uh, Jack Torrance uh, making his way to the Overlook Hotel uh, for a job interview. Um, once he gets to that job interview, uh, we find out that uh, he has been... He's interviewing for a job to basically look after the Overlook Hotel during the winter season. Um, the one, now, the Overlook Hotel is set in the mountains, and very uh, astutely, Jack asks why it's not open during the winter for uh, for skiing and things like that. Uh, when the uh, manager um, basically tells him that, yeah, yeah, it would be good for skiing, but the 
the snowstorms that we get up here are so bad that you know we couldn't get cars or anything up here during the during the season, so that's why we close. Um, Stuart Allman is the character's name, uh, basically yes. foreshadowing exactly what's going to happen later in the film when there's a massive snowstorm and nobody can get to them. Oh, there's a lot of foreshadowing in this movie. Oh yeah, um, but but the uh, the scene here with the, with the interview. There's a couple of things to talk about. The first is, I guess, just already from the beginning, just seeing like Jack Nicholson or Jack Torrance's body language. It's just so nonchalant about, you know, Bobby just, it doesn't seem like, I mean, obviously, you know, it's a job that he really wants. You know, we find out later on he feels like, you know, the salads will, will give him, you know, I guess inspiration or give him the time to, you know, get into writing as an aspiring writer. But it's just the way that he just, it's just like his overall demeanor in this interview is just, I, I don't know if it's blatant foreshadowing, but it just, he just seems so nonchalant about it. It, it w- was the first impression that I had. Um, the second thing about, I don't know if you want to talk about already, like the impossible window that's in this room, but, uh, while going through some of the articles for this movie, um, plus, you know, watching the room 237 documentary, um, this is one of the better points that actually was brought up, uh, during the documentary was the fact that the window in, in Stuart Ullman's office is a window that technically and logically should not be there because (laughs) there's no way from what we see from the from the outline of the hotel that when when Jack Torrance the little corridor that goes into like an office that goes into the actual Stuart Ullman office like there should be no there's no way there could possibly be a window there but that's done on purpose by Kubrick and it's been and I, I think one of his assistant directors or I forgot who it was was talking about how the design of the hotel is like illogical on purpose to kind of throw the audience off which I think is just another one of Mwah. A brilliant, brilliant addition there by Cooper to kind of just get already get us something's wrong here, something doesn't feel right, you know. And it's it, while it might seem like you know, not necessarily a continuity error, but a production error. No, this is a very blatant move by Kubrick, and it already just having that window there, already knowing that it really going off of the layout of the hotel and how we saw him walking that that technically shouldn't be a window there. It, it just it's already we're off to, we're off to the races as i say so yeah it, it is interesting it, it's one of those things that i probably i didn't i honestly didn't notice until the documentary pointed it out and it is one of those things that i i don't know if i ever would have noticed or if or if i would just subconsciously like thought oh, that's weird that, that it's there but you're right it doesn't make any sense and the, and the thing is that is true that hotel doesn't make a lot of sense when you try to lay it out in your head. Um, it, and it really doesn't. It is purposely designed that way to confuse you and also kind of, you know, kind of give a little bit of, of theme to the film, you know, about madness and whatever. But it is kind of an odd, it's an odd duck of a hotel. Um, yeah, th- yeah. That, that's an interesting, it's an interesting takeaway. Um so before we get into too much of the interview, we do get a cutaway to um, to uh, Wendy and Danny. Um, Danny being the son of both Wendy and Jack, uh, basically asking, you know, the, he's he's eating a sandwich and and she's saying, oh, I wonder how your dad's doing. 
and Danny already knows. He's like, oh, he's in the interview now, and uh, and you kind of get an early glimpse of uh, that that he's got some sort of special gift. Um, and she's trying to make him excited about going to the hotel, but he brings out his little his little Tony voice saying that, uh, which is his his quote unquote imaginary friend saying that he does not want to go to the hotel, Mrs. Torrance. Um, so you start you get a little bit of that in a cutaway scene, kind of informing us that Danny's a little a little special, and that Wendy's you know in you know Wendy's the mother and everything, but it's really more about Danny in that scene. Right. So we start getting to know basically the other Torrances. Like we're seeing Jack already in the interview. And then before we can get, like I said, before we can get more into that, we kind of cut away to his family. And we see that there's something peculiar about Danny. We're not really sure what it is yet. Obviously, like, you know, maybe some people at first glance would think, you know, his whole thing with the Tonys is, oh, it's just, you know, a kid going through his imaginary friend phase. But there's actually more to it than that, as we'll find out very soon. So um, back at the interview, we we get basically a lot of exposition. Um, we learned that uh, the it was built on our native uh, Native American burial ground. Um, That's never a good sign, by the it's way. It's never a good sign. I don't know why people do this. Um, <laughs> uh, it just reminds me of the poltergeist. Toby so, Hooper learned that the hard way. Too. I was about to say it reminds me of poltergeist. You you moved the headstones, but you didn't move the bodies. Anyway. Um, <laughs> Built on a Native American burial ground, uh, it closes during the Snowden months for the reasons I said before, um, and uh, basically that the Jack and his family are going to be there to watch over the hotel for approximately like you know Snowden months, so it's probably four or five months, um, and uh, so I think it's November when they get in there, right? Something like that. Um, so through probably March or so, right? So that's about five months, um, and. Uh, that uh, he also goes into the reputation, how the previous, uh, the previous uh, caretaker, Charles Grady, not Delbert Grady, Charles Grady, which is an interesting point, uh, killed his yes. family and himself. Um, and then Jack is just kind of like, well, that's creepy, but I'm still need the job and I need to have the solitude to write because he's really a writer. Uh, and uh, yeah, then so he takes the, you know, he takes the job. Yes. Um, so I'm I'm glad you put emphasis on the Charles Grady because that's going to come up again later. Uh, continuity error or on purpose? You'll be the judge. So. So we cut now. We cut back to um, to Wendy and and Danny and Danny is in the bathroom like brushing his teeth or something and he starts talking to himself and his imaginary friend Tony. And Tony basically is trying to warn Danny not to go, and he gives him a vision of of the hotel. So Danny, in his mind's eye, sees the blood, the famous scene shot of the blood coming out of the elevators, and he sees a shot of the of the Grady twins. Uh, and then it it messes him up so bad that he basically passes out. And we immediately, the next scene, we immediately cut to uh, like a, a doctor examining him. Well, the weird thing about the blood in that scene is that usually gets off on the second floor. I understood that reference. <laughs> I understood that reference because I just watched that. 
<laughs> the shinning. Um, anyway. That's right. <laughs> um, so for those who might be lost, that is a reference to the Treehouse of Horrors uh, episode. I think it's the fifth, uh, the fifth Treehouse of Horrors by The Simpsons. Um, because, yes. And I just watched that because the uh, Disney Plus has them all like... And the, like it's on, on their own playlist, like every single Treehouse of Horrors. So I was, I've been watching them uh, back to back, uh, on like when I want something to to like put on in the background, and uh, I just watched that specific episode with with the Shining parody. So uh, yeah, I understood that reference. <laughs> uh, a little foreshadowing on my end. Uh, my weekend will be dominated by that playlist plus the Mandalorian. So, right. Uh. I forgot how how messed up those. You know what? It's funny because I little little detour here. I remember seeing that first Treehouse of Horrors, um, the one with the Raven and the you know the aliens that were going to cook yeah. up and stuff. I remember seeing it live as it aired because I remember watching the season, The Simpsons, in its first season as a little kid, and I remember like it brought back this nostalgia to me, like watching that episode because I don't think I've seen it since. And I was like, oh, man, I remember this so clearly because I remember thinking to myself, like, how weird it was that they were doing this. Because, you know, as a little kid, you don't really understand canon, right? Like, you just don't understand that, like, yeah. things happen in a show. But, like, this is, like, so they're telling stories, but they're not really happening. It's not, like, Homer isn't really, like, this guy with the raven. I mean, I was, like, eight years old, nine years old or whatever, right? So, like, yeah. I was, like, a little confused. Um, but, yeah, I remember I remember so clearly watching this episode. It was, um, but, yeah, it's it's fun. So if anybody wants to watch uh, the Treehouse of Horrors, they're all on a playlist on Disney+, Plus, all back-to-back. -back. So uh, I've, I've watched at least six or seven of them so far. So uh, they're a lot of fun. Yeah, and some of those... Uh, uh... From the golden age of The Simpsons, from those first, at least to me, the golden age is from seasons, uh, seasons three to season ten. But you know, a lot of people narrow it down to like seven or eight. But the Treehouse of Horrors from those years are just amazing, like just quotable episodes, classics in every sense of the word. I think the last one I saw was the one, whatever one was the one where the teachers were eating the students. Um, nightmare cafeteria. Yeah, nightmare are you cafeteria. saying you cook Jimbo <laughs> and served him for lunch? <laughs> you know, wait, no, no, the, it goes like, are you saying you killed Jimbo, processed his carcass, and served him for lunch? Ha! <laughs> and then they just ate him. <laughs> you, you might say <laughs> he's in our stomachs right now. <laughs> no, wait, scratch that. Wait, nope, scratch that one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and the the one I really loved was the the Twilight Zone parody of the Nightmare at Five Feet or whatever with the gremlin oh, on the yes. bus. <laughs> I hear some it took children me years to see that Twilight Zone episode, but uh, <laughs> when I finally see, I I I was a troll a few years ago when it came to stuff like this because I would watch like the stuff that the was inspired that the Simpsons like would you know Paris did that first. Oh, the Simpsons did that first, and then people would look at me like. You know, we're, I know, I know, I'm just being a jerk. <laughs> um, it's like that line whenever it's like, when Skinner comes back, it's like, I heard a child using his imagination back here, and I've come to put a stop to it. I've come to put a stop to it. <laughs> That's right. Um, anyway, um, back to the shining, the shinning. Yes, back to the, <laughs> back to the shinning. <laughs> So yeah, we come back from his from his visions and the doctor's examining him. Basically, she 
there's nothing. She finds that there's nothing physically wrong with him, but she starts asking Wendy some questions about, you know, his life to see if there's something psychologically going on. Um, and then we get some backstory here where, uh, basically, we find out that Jack is a little bit of an alcoholic, and in uh, one uh, one night he, uh, in a kind of a drunken rage, pulled on Danny's arm just a little too hard and dislocated it. And uh, ever since then, he's become, you know, uh, he's tried to, he's been trying to recover from his alcoholism. Right. So we, yeah, like you said, we get a little bit of background here. And I kind of like a couple things. The first thing is, I kind of like how the whole, this whole scene is, is framed as far as camera wise, because you kind of just get this close up on Shelly Duvall. She's kind of telling this story. And it's, and the way like her facial expressions kind of tell the story for her. Like, it's one of those things where you kind of already get a sense of from hearing, you know, her telling the story, you know, of the kind of housewife or the kind of person that she is. And, you know, it, it, it's it's one of those moments that kind of helps illuminate the story later on for her, because just kind of on the surface, like you, you see the way she is kind of in the story and, you know. It's, it's funny. I was um, I screened this for my sister uh, over the weekend. I think this was the first time she was she was watching the show of this and Doctor Sleep. You know, she's watching the, she's watching this and she's watching like this scene. She's watching you know the scene later on um, when she interrupts him working, which we'll get to later. You know, and she keeps saying like, "Oh, she's so stupid. Oh, she's so dumb. She's so submissive." And it's like, you know, you kind of already get that from the way she tells the story. Like, oh, you know, he didn't really mean to. Like, he just pulled on his arm a little bit too hard. You know, but ever since then, like, you know, he said, you know, Wendy, you know, I'm not touching another drop or whoever, whatever the line is. You know, and tells that story already kind of gives you an insight as to what kind of like housewife she is. Yeah, exactly. She she is a good good acting performance by Shelley Duvall here because she does a lot of acting with her face. Like she, you know, she's yeah. saying one thing, but you know her her, like her like you can read on her face that she knows how bad it sounds. Um. So our next scene uh is uh is the family driving to the Overlook Hotel, um, and uh, just kind of a normal scene of them just kind of going over you know what, what's going to happen at the hotel and you know for whatever reason Danny talks about the uh. Uh, the family that <laughs> ate each other up in, in, as cannibals and things like that. Um, one thing that I appreciate about this scene is that uh, Jack is clearly, the way he plays it is kind of funny. He plays it as a dad who has been on a long road trip and just wants to get there. Because he's, he's got this look on his face like, I, I don't care what you're talking about. I just want to get here out of this car right now. Well, for those who don't know, also there's actually a deleted scene that goes with this uh, with this part of the movie because this is actually the second trip they're making up there because he forgot to lock the front door when they initially <laughs> left, so they had to go back. And they have to go back again because he didn't lock the back door. <laughs> That's right. So <laughs> instead like, of leaving all that in, Kubrick, this the very smart uh, filmmaker that he is, cut all that out and just we got to the point. So. <laughs> Oh, I don't know if the the shitting references are going to stop. Um, <laughs> oh, it, it, it's not. I'll, I'll say it right now. Uh, not related to the Shining. The I forget which Treehouse of Horrors it is. The but when they did the King Kong parody, there's a line that I cannot believe oh, they yes. got away with. Where I'm sure you know it, but it's whenever 
you know, uh, Burns is asking Smithers, like, if they should invite Marge onto the boat. And, and Smithers goes, I don't think uh, women and semen mix. It's semen just mix. I was like, they did not just say that. They did not just say semen that. Semen don't mix, sir. <laughs> That's right. I can't believe they got away with that on, like, broadcast television in, like, 1992 or whatever it was, you know? Like, that. that is a hilarious line. And also now it's on Disney. Well, I mean, there's a there's a semen well, obviously joke like, on Disney Plus. That's right. And, and it, it well, obviously to me watching it as like an eight year old or ten year old, however old I was when that episode you know first came out, like of course that just went completely over my head, and I didn't get it till like years later. And I'm just like, <gasps> that's a fun, it's such a funny line. <laughs> and, right. and at that point, like, the episode is like 15 years old or whatever. <laughs> All right, so so we're back at the hotel. Um, and, uh, Ullman is, is there to greet them and he's basically showing them, showing them around the hotel. We start to get a pretty liberal use of the steady cam here as it follows, uh, Ullman and, uh, and Jack and, and, uh, Wendy around. Um, and <laughs> what I like about this is the, like, Ullman's, like, outfit is hilarious. Like, in the first scene when he's interviewing Jack, he's, like, in a suit. And in this, like, he's wearing, like, bell-bottoms and this, like, leather jacket. I'm like, who is this guy? What's he... What is this outfit, man? <laughs> um, and he's also got a great line here as he's, as he's you know, giving the tour. He's like, all presidents have stayed here. Um, you know, celebrities. And uh, Wendy says something like, any royalty? And he goes, all the best people. All the, That's right. He goes, all the best people. That's right. <laughs> But the line delivery on, on when he said all the best people was great too. Like that's just yeah. like perfect. Um, as this is happening, Danny's in the game room playing darts. When all of a sudden he gets another visit from the Grady twins. This time in person, um, nothing really happens. They just kind of show up and look at him. But he's he's kind of a little creeped out by it. I don't know if I want to talk about this because this has already been disproven, but supposedly in this scene, according to room 237 is where you see the, uh, the little skiing uh, advertisement, like on the wall, that's supposed to be like a minotaur, but hmm. I forget who said, it. I think it was somebody working in the production said, that's not a minotaur. It's actually a real human skier. So they pulled <laughs> that right out of their ass. Um, but then they go on this whole tangent about like minotaurs and like you know the freaking uh I, I don't even want to get into it because it was it was just silly that that part didn't annoy uh, didn't piss me off or get me angry it was just annoying because obviously it's like how do you get from the little like blurred screenshot of that ski advertisement you where do you see like I, I don't see it like but whatever people see what they want to see you know and it's interesting here um in this in this whole setup. As they're giving the tour, it's like I thought of it kind of like is is a reverse psycho in the sense that in the movie Psycho, all the action happens, and then the last like part of the movie is just explaining everything that explaining the whole movie to you, right? The the guy, right. the psychologist, explains who Norman like what made Norman do this and his whole history, right? Whereas this movie does the like it flips it, like it tells you the history of the hotel with like the Grady's, and then it like gives you an entire tour of the hotel. Basically, giving you every spot that you're gonna see in the movie. You see the hedge maze. He, you, you see the the snow cat that comes into play later. You see the ballroom. Like everything that you're gonna see in the movie, like he shows during this whole um, this whole tour, uh, and and all of it comes into play later. There's like nothing that he shows that doesn't come into play. 
That's right, down to the stock room. Down to the stock room. Um, and the stock room in plays the, in a very the kitchen. So yeah. literally every place. Yeah, the stock room plays an important part as to why I um, uh, I have my theories about this film, but we'll, we'll get to that a little later. Um, because you know, there's always the the series, the, the theory of what is actually happening in the in the film, but we'll we'll get to that at the end of the film. Yeah. <laughs> um, Scatman Carruthers, uh, who plays Dick Halloran, comes into the uh, into the picture, and he gives uh, Wendy and Danny a tour of the kitchen and the stock room, as you mentioned. Um, he kind of lets lets it slip here by co- by uh, by calling Danny Doc, um, and uh, which confuses Wendy a little bit because how does she know that we they, we call him Doc? And it turns out that um, Mr. Halloran is a, a bit of a psychic, or they call it here. He has the Shining, uh, and he explains to Danny what that is in a little in a scene a little bit later on, um, uh, because as he's going over with. Uh, in the stock room with uh, Wendy, what everything that they have, you'll hear like a little bit of a voiceover. like, how about some ice cream, Doc? Yep, that's right. So um, while I think uh, Allman takes Jack and Wendy to the rest of the hotel and the rest of the tour, I guess show them like their apartment or where they're living, you know, uh, Dick takes uh, Danny and gets ice cream for him. They sit down, they start talking for a little bit. You know, they, they kind of, you know, he, he says to him, you know, do you know how I was able to, you know, talk to you the, the way I did? Or I'm paraphrasing the quote, but I was just able to ask you about your ice cream and, you know, and then they kind of go into, you know, we have this ability and, you know, my grandmother had it. And that's how she and I used to communicate. Uh, and it kind of just lays out, you know, what the shining is basically. Oh, and he also made sure to tell Danny not to read his mind between four and five because that's his time. So... <laughs> <laughs> we call it the shitting. You mean shining? You want to get sued? Sued? <laughs> Don't read my mind between four and um. Each time. Yeah. So basically, he uh, he tells him. Yeah. He goes down. He calls it the shining, um, and basically warns him to stay away from room two thirty seven. Um, now, interestingly enough. The, in the book, it was not room 237. Uh, it was room 217. Um, but the hotel right. they used in the um, in the uh, the exteriors of the film um, to basically asked them not to use that room number because they think it, they thought it might spook guests. Uh, so they changed it to room 237, which doesn't exist at that specific hotel. Um, and uh, interestingly enough, it. That hotel, which I believe is still around, um, room two seventeen is the most requested room. Well, I don't know what to believe with that story anymore because according to room two thirty seven, there's actually that that the room two seventeen doesn't actually exist either. But again, there's a lot of bullcocky in that documentary anyway. So I'm gonna go with the story that changed the name because of that concern they had. But according to that documentary, that that's also a lie. But Whatever. Well, there's a lot of. Yeah, I was gonna say there's a lot of bull film. cocky in there. <laughs> they um, can say what it is. <laughs> so we we fast forward to about a month later. Um, we just see them kind of going through their daily routines. Uh, you know, Wendy's making breakfast, and Danny's like riding his uh his big wheel throughout the uh throughout the hotel, which I think is has a really cool sound uh, sound design where. 
when he's on the hard floor, like you hear it like really loud, but then he goes onto the carpet, you hear it like muffled, then loud, then muffled, loud, then muffled. Um, you see that Jack is starting to sleep in late. Um, so already you kind of see that maybe he's not already with it. Um, and, uh, but, but, you know, he says how much he loves it here and, and how much he, he's enjoying the, the time to, to write for himself. But we see that it's been a month and you go and we get a shot of his typewriter and he's not really writing anything. There's nothing been written. And all he's doing is in, is in that big room, just kind of playing with a tennis ball, bouncing it off the walls. Uh, you were saying earlier, um, how like, you know, he was starting to sleep in and you can already tell he's not really with it anymore. But the thing about Jack is that he used to be with it, but then they changed what it was. Now what he's with isn't it. And what's it is weird and scary to him. Oh, jeez, It's not going to stop. <laughs> I told you it's not going to stop. It's not going to stop. <laughs> um, uh, we, I mean, we that can a... explain why he's sleeping in now. Like it, it, what's, it is weird and scary to him. Um, we get a shot of um, we get a, a scene where Wendy and uh, Danny go to the hedge maze and you know try to find their way out. Uh, and uh, again, another foreshadowing of what's going to be happening later in the film, and uh, which is and it's a really cool little kind of match uh, match cut where we see then Jack kind of walking through the through the halls aimlessly and he comes like upon a model of the of the uh of the hedge maze and then you get like uh like a uh, a down shot an overhead shot of the hedge maze so that for a second you think he's still looking at the model but then you see people moving in the middle and it's really just an overhead of the actual maze so i mean there's probably some sort of symbolism there of jack looking down onto his wife and family you know but you know we we can save that for the experts i guess But the but the part of that the the line from that scene that really kind of I don't know, but it was just it kind of just sticks out like a sore thumb because it's kind of weird is when she says when Wendy says to Danny she goes you know the loser has to keep America clean I'm like what the hell does that mean like you know uh, I've always seen Room Two Thirty Seven they have theories as to like how that line connects to other things but like just on its face like. What does that even mean? You know, it, it, I don't know. It's just it's, it's, it's just probably something line. that was happening in like the late seventies, early eighties. Some pop culture reference that we're not aware of. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, obviously they mentioned like the crying Indian commercial from the seventies, but it's like, is that really? Could that really what they'd be talking about? Because I mean, I can't really think of anything else. But like, how would like the loser have? You know, it's just I don't I don't know. Like I'm thinking about it too much. I think. So we get. Uh... We get another shot of Danny riding his trice, uh, his his big wheel through the halls. Again, this is setting like really good filmmaking here because we get several scenes of him doing that. Um, like the first one, there's no, there's no. The first time we see it, there's no, um, no incident. The second time we see it, like he stops right. at, at room two thirty seven. Try to maybe he gets interested and he tries to open the door, but it's locked, and then he kind of goes on his way. And then later on, we'll see what happens next time he's on a tricycle, but. Um, we also see uh, Wendy kind of come in and try to talk to Jack, um, just you know, to make you know, uh, chit chat with her husband. And basically, he kind of snaps at her and says that, like, when he's in here writing, <laughs> not to bother him, and he like loses his mind and is incredibly, <laughs> an incredible ass to her. Um, and uh, but it's a never do like she's she's literally coming into she's coming into his workspace, bro, and just saying, you know, oh, the, the weatherman's supposed to snow tomorrow. And he's just sitting there like, 
And what would you like me to do about it? <laughs> I just love, I love the 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 performances here. Like she's just all, oh, you know, it's supposed to snow tomorrow. Okay, what am I supposed to do about that? <laughs> I just, it, it's a great her, but it's just, I just love the performances. That just, it just cracked me up. Um, and interestingly enough, as he's in there writing, you don't see what he's writing, what he's typing. But the second is that that Wendy comes up, he rips the paper out and like faces it face down on the on the desk, so he, she can't see what he's writing. Um, so is it, I mean, is he already writing the uh, "I'll work and no play," or is it or, or what? Like that's it's interesting that we don't see. It. Yeah, well, obviously, like you don't think that, but now I think yes, that's all he's been doing this entire time. <laughs> this is where we start to see Jack go full on crazy, uh, as we see. Um, Danny and Wendy kind of playing out in the snow. You just get a random shot of Jack just staring out the window. He's got a beard. He hasn't shaved in several days. And he's just kind of blankly staring as, like, creepy music plays in the background. Um, and at this point, you're just seeing, like, the days pop up of the week. Like, it's been a month, but then it just starts slowing down to, like, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Um, so you don't – so now it's, like, we're on a daily basis. And, he's only, and they've only been there a month so far. Yeah, and it's just like I think what what amazed me the first time watching this was just after a month he's already kind of the scene we just saw with him just like just the way he's staring out the window at them just like in this kind of dazed kind of trance and it's just like dude it hasn't even been, you haven't even been there a month and already like it's it, it like it's starting to get to you now like I mean I don't know if it's necessarily just cabin fever or, I mean, obviously there's kind of more sinister things at play when it comes to the hotel, but, you know, stuck in the house for two months and I didn't start acting like that. But then again, my house wasn't haunted, but, you know, then again, like Stephen King in the novel, he kind of played up the supernatural elements more than Kubrick did. So, but nonetheless, I mean, it's just funny, like just, in such rapid succession, he's already kind of losing it. Right. Um, uh, so we get a scene where um, uh, Wendy tries, like, the radio uh, and gets in touch with the police. And she's just kind of making chit-chat with them and uh, talking about the snowstorm and, and everything like that. But nothing – but just, you know, again, setting up – there's a radio there with, with that has contact to the outside world. Uh, which will come into play a little later, and then following this, we see Danny riding down the uh, d- down with his uh, big wheel again, one more time. This is where we finally get the uh, I don't know if you'd call it a jump scare because not I don't know it doesn't like jump out at you, but it's certainly like when you think when you it's like a, it's or, a sudden cut though. It's a sudden like boom as he as he rounds He's the corner. About the twins, there, right? there, yeah, as he as he rounds the corner, corner there's a there are the twins, uh, and it's a creepy thing and i remember when i watched the first time not knowing they were coming like kind of going oh shit you know um yeah it's a creepy scene and then they're 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 just standing there and they just say come play with us danny forever and ever and as they say that he get danny starts seeing visions of their bodies like you know bloodied on the floor and hacked up uh with an axe laying next to them which which is interesting because I, I mean, wondered... that's what I was more referring to. Like, yeah, he when he, he turns the corner and they're there, and you know, yeah, that's like a oh, you're not expecting that. So, 
that's like like you said, it's not really a jump scare, but it's like it's just surprising. But what I was referring to, like, was the sudden cut. Like, you know, you just it's showing the twins, right? And then just a snap cut like that, they're on they're bloody down the floor. He's seeing the vision of their bodies. And that just comes out of nowhere too. So that like really kind of catches you off guard as well. And I you know what? I did I should have I wanted to research this and I just I probably just didn't get to it. Um but are the people, the, the the actresses laying on the floor all bloody, are they the same actress playing the twins? Because it would be kind of screwed up to ask these two little girls to be covered in blood and laying there like they're dead. So I was wondering if they maybe got, like, body doubles or something. I mean, it's possible, but I don't really know, to be honest with you. Yeah, it's a screwed up. I mean, if you pause it on that sequence uh, and you just look at the, at the picture, it's a gruesome scene. Um, and, yeah, it's... It's it's creepy. Uh, so this obviously traumatizes Danny. Very much so. Very much so. Um, and uh, uh, you know, Tony kind of talks to him a little bit, and and uh, um, he go in the next sequence. He's um, he goes to ask his dad if he can uh, if he can kind of what does he ask his dad what he can do if he can go talk to him. Uh, oh, he wants to get his fire truck out of that room. That's what it is. And, and when yeah. he gets into the room, yeah, yeah, I think him and Wendy are watching the uh, in the living room, and then that's when she asks him, like, you know, can I go up? Your dad's sleeping. You know, you shouldn't bother him. Like, I'll be quiet. He won't know I'm there or whatever. And then finally, she just says, okay, you can go. And that's when uh, he goes, and he's actually not asleep at all. He's actually very awake, just sitting on the bed, kind of staring into space. And that's when Danny walks in. Yeah, so he's just staring out into space, just completely like a loon. And then uh, he comes in and he, he, he just he starts hugging him and, and, you know, and giving him like really creepy like hugs, like with this really wide eyed stare. So he gets his toys and then we see the kind of the famous shot of him playing on that famous uh, Overlook Hotel carpeting with his with his toys, the, that kind of geographic, like geometrical shapes, like the red, black and orange, you know, pattern that, you know, now is everyone kind of recognizes. Um, and he's, I believe, in the same hallway that uh, room two thirty seven is in, uh, and he see, and this is also where he's wearing his Apollo eleven sweatshirt that comes into play in one of the uh, that don't, documentary. Don't get me started, man. That, you're, you're triggering me already with that reference. <laughs> um, but he sees the room thirty two thirty seven trigger uh, warnings. Yeah, he sees the room two thirty seven door open, and he walks towards it and inside. Then we cut to. Um, Jack is asleep at his at his desk, uh, at his typewriter, and he's having a nightmare, um, and he's like kind of screaming in his sleep, like you know, uh, freaking out, um, and he so loud that Wendy like hears him from like a different place in the hotel, and I think the boiler room, and like runs to where Jack is as he's having his nightmare, which is co- this nightmare is coinciding with Danny being in in room yeah. 37. Yeah, so like like you said, like you know, Jack just starts having this nightmare. Just like he kind of just falls asleep, you know, where his typewriter is in the, in the big room. Uh, I guess I guess it's the rec room or whatever. But um, you know, Wendy comes running. You know, oh my god, you know, you know, wake up, Jack. And then you know, she's like, you know, what's wrong? Like I just had like the worst nightmare. And like you know, well, it's over now. Like, you know, I I dreamt that I was, you know, I forgot how he said it, but he basically said he dreamt, you know, her and and Danny. And, you know, like, well, now it's over. And I, th- I think at that point also, it's like, right after, like, you know, she's, she's trying to call him down. You know that, well, it's over now. Danny walks in, and he already has the scars on his neck, which flips out Wendy because she thinks that, oh, now he's he's abusing him again. 
Right. He's his his clothes are torn. He's got marks on his neck. And then she yeah, exactly. She she immediately blames him for it. And there's actually kind of a funny look that <laughs> the look that Nicholson has on his face while she's getting while she's blaming him. Look, I was just um, about to say that. Like the look he gives, like after she's like yelling at him. You know, you monster, how could you? And just, the way he just has a, like, that innocent stare, like, I didn't do anything. It's just per- perfect facial acting there by Jack Nicholson. And it, it, it's kind of hilarious. It, I know it's not supposed to be, but it, I think just that specific face just looks, like, really funny whenever he, when he has it. Um, so now is when the supernatural stuff really starts to kick into high gear for the rest of the film. After being accused right. of, of of hurting his son, which he didn't do, he's now walking through the halls, like, talking to himself and, like, just kind of mumbling and cursing and about, about this. And he walks through the, uh, the gold room, which is empty, as it should be, and he walks and turns on the lights, sits down at the, uh, sits down at the empty bar. Um... Obviously, there's no booze to be found anywhere because there's nobody. As they, as they make sure to say at the during the tour at the beginning. Again, it's all laid out in the beginning of the film. Allman says they put away all the booze and it's all locked up. You know, so that there's no access to any alcohol in in the uh, in the hotel. But when he sits down and there's yeah, I think they said it's for like insurance purposes or whatever. Yeah. 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 There's no alcohol on the shelves, and he's sitting there. And he starts, uh, and then we get kind of a uh, a uh, a uh, a perspective, like a front-on perspective of, of of Jack looking basically into the camera, and he kind of gives that little laugh uh, that he does, and uh, suddenly <laughs> there's a bartender there, and with a fully stocked uh, bar, and he calls him. Uh, he says, "How you doing, Lloyd?" Slow night, isn't it? Or the alternate take, Mo, give me a beer. No, not unless to kill your family. Why should I kill my family? Um, they'll be much happier as ghosts. You don't look so happy. Oh, I'm happy. I'm happy. La da la da da da. See, now what's your family? I'll give you a beer. Kubrick did not use that take, obviously, but no, he did not. We got the much more professional, pronounced, deliberate take. So, but yes, we have a uh, Lloyd the bartender. What'll it be, Mister Torrance? Um, and this, uh, this is apparently the scene that took 12 hours to film, which is interesting because it's not a particularly difficult looking scene. It's just two guys talking, you know, shot, reverse shot. Um, nothing really particularly, no difficult blocking or actions or anything. So it's interesting that it took that long to film. Yeah, but I think uh, the actor who played the who played Lloyd, like he actually went on record saying like he enjoyed the experience as it's exhausting as it was. Like he's, I think he went on record as saying like it was like the best experience of his life. I guess just being able to work with Kubrick, <laughs> just alone, you know, would do that. As exhausting as I'm sure the shoot was, that's being able to do that scene and just being on with Jack Nicholson. I'm that's a career highlight right there. Right. So now here's the question. So as he's kind of here, he, you know, Lloyd gives him a drink and we've talked about how Jack is a recovering alcoholic. And he even says during this, this, uh, uh, during this little monologue here that he admits that he hurt the Danny, my act, but it was by accident and he feels bad and he felt bad about it. But, 
you know, was one of those just one of those things. Now, here's the thing about this. As we've said before, and we've alluded to, there is a debate. And now I know Dr. Sleep answers it, so, but we're not going to get into that. But there's a debate as to whether the hotel is haunted or whether Jack is going crazy, right? So in this specific scene, do you think that he's envisioning this where the, the, the hotel is like showing this to him and pouring him his drink? Or do you think he's imagining it? Because what's interesting is, is that when Wendy comes bolting in, there's no glass there. He hasn't been drinking any, he has, even though he's been drinking that whole scene, there's no glass there for him to be drinking from, right? So what, right. what was happening, right? Was, he imag- was the hotel making him imagine that? Or was the hotel giving him alcohol and then the alcohol disappeared when Lloyd disappeared? Um, personally, the way I saw it is I always kind of try to keep intended in mind, even though, yes, this is Kubrick's adaptation, but, you know, according to Stephen King, like the hotel itself was haunted. So when I would watch this, when I would watch this scene, I always think, you know, the hotel is haunted. The hotel is giving him the liquor. You know, and he's uh, and and then what I kind of do in my own headcanon also is I kind of mix this mythology with the Matrix. Or like, oh, is he really drinking the? Uh, is he really drinking? You know, the alcohol, or is you know the hotel making him think? That- and that's the thing. Like, it's like I, the the whole thing, the scene with with the steak with our boy Joey Pants. <laughs> that's the thing. Is is the hotel making him think that he's drinking, or is he actually drinking? Like, that's what is difficult. So Wendy yes. comes in so, and like and says, "There's somebody in the, in the room that attacked Danny." Blah blah blah. And before before we get like an answer to that, we cut to uh, Dick O'Halloran in his like in his apartment uh, watching the news uh, when he hears something and when he hears like stories about like a, a big snowstorm coming for the Rockies. Now, what's hilarious about this scene that I have I had seen this movie so many times, and it wasn't until a few years ago that I noticed that there were naked women <laughs> all over his room. walls. And it just was like, and it just cracked me up. It's such a funny art direction choice to put these these naked black women, these huge afros uh, on his uh, on his walls. It's just so hilarious. Um, and in the in the shinning, it's it's girls in kilts, which I thought, which I thought was <laughs> that's <hilarious>. right. <laughs> um, but during I was this, going to bring up that point because it just it seems like now we don't we don't know a lot about uh, Dick Halloran as a character, like or his personality, like would he be into this stuff? But to just have those pictures there, you know, just in plain sight of the of of the audience too, like it's just it's. It's strange, but it's like fascinating at the same time. If that even makes any sense, because like I said, we don't know much about him, but the fact that he would even have those posters in his or those pictures, like in his house, already says a lot about. Yeah, in um, my opinion. Now, while he's sitting there in his in his you know, in his porny room, there, um, he gets he gets kind of a, a communication from from uh, Danny all the way across the country. And, you know, because he's, he's so all of a sudden his, he, his eyes kind of widen and then we cut to Danny who's like shaking and like spit coming out of his mouth. 
because I think he's trying to commu- as he's trying to communicate uh, something about room two thirty seven to to Dick, um, and then we cut to uh, Jack, who is uh, investigating what's going on in room two thirty seven, and uh, he looks around he around the room in, in a uh, using Steadicam but in, in it's a point of view shot, um, and we get to the bathroom where a you know a beautiful naked woman is sitting in the tub, and. Uh, she gets out of the tub and walks towards him, and he's uh, he's very excited about it. <laughs> uh, but then, as he kisses her, yeah, we know we like we kind of pull back and reveal that it is a rotting old woman. Before I talk about that, I wanted to mention just one small thing from back in the uh, in the gold room. I love I love Jack's uh, well Jack Nicholson's delivery when. Uh, Right after when he asked him, like when Lloyd asked him, you know, will it be Mr. Torrance? And then Jack has like that grin on his face and he goes, I'm awfully glad you asked me that, Lloyd, because I just happen to have two 20s and two 10s right here in my wallet. And he does like the slapping <laughs> motion, like the wallet and just the smile that he has on his face while he's doing that. Like it always just cracks me up. I love I love the way he delivers that line. Just and again, like his facial expressions, like tell the whole story there, too. Like he's just so happy to be asked, you know. You know, if if we want to drink, but going back now to, to room two thirty seven, yes, this is kind of like the one of the more infamous scenes of the movie, where like you know the beautiful naked woman turns into the decaying old corpse, uh, and this was probably not to get ahead of myself, but this was probably the uh, player one that popped me the most when H was uh, exposed to this part of the movie, bro. <laughs> I was I, like, he walks in there and he sees the woman like, oh, oh, he, like, you, you know what's gonna happen, but you're still like trying to tell him like, run, you, you know, get out of the room. Um, but but yeah, I, I love that whole Ready Player. It's probably my favorite scene in that whole movie. This the homage to The Shining they do, but uh, uh, yeah, rotting old woman corpse. <laughs> yeah, uh, it, it's a it's a creepy scene. Um, and and he freaks out as he and he runs out of the room. Uh, and then when he comes back to Wendy, he's like, well, there's nothing in there. I checked that there was nothing in there at all. <laughs> so we get a cut scene where uh, Dick O'Halloran is now basically trying to trying to get out to, to Colorado to to see if he can help with the situation. Uh, and we and pretty soon we see him on a plane heading out to Colorado. Um, but uh, but while Jack is explaining that. Uh, that he didn't see anything. He's telling her, he's telling Wendy that maybe he did it to himself. Um, and Danny is having <laughs> that. That excuse always goes well. Yeah. And Danny is now having visions of uh, red rum, red rum on the on the uh, on the door there. I can I, well, I can imagine like Dick Halloran like on the plane, like the little fat boy and his family are in trouble. <laughs> so after uh, Danny's not fat, but <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so actually I got ahead of myself. He wasn't on the plane yet. He, uh, what he was doing was he was calling the police department to see if they could get a hold of, of the family yeah. and, uh, they can't get a hold of them. So that's when he decides to take a plane out there to check in on them. Um, now was that already after Jack, like disabled the, the radio thing? Uh, it was before because I think the reason they couldn't get a hold of them was because they were, um, you know that she was too preoccupied with what happened to Danny, so that she wasn't near the radio. Oh, okay, gotcha. So, 
we get now we get scene of, of Jack again walking through the halls, very upset with what was going on. Uh, and then he walks by the gold room again, and this time, looks like there's a party going on. It's uh, a party. It's the Roaring Twenties. Like, yeah, I was about to say like the Roaring Twenties. There's flappers everywhere. Uh, and then um, he gets uh, he gets back to the bar, talks to Lloyd, and then. Uh, you know, before he didn't have any money on him, even though he said he did. Like he now has money on him. He tries to tries to pay for the drinks, and he's like, "Your money's no good here, Mister Torrance." And uh, that's and uh, he's like, "Well, I don't want to know who buys my drinks." And then uh, it's all taken care of, sir. Then he finally just accepts it, and he's like, "All right, fine." Uh, but now we now we get to the real meat of the matter is uh, we think that you know something is happening and the hotel is clearly influencing him to to do something. So he takes his drink and he starts walking around and he accidentally bumps into a very innocent looking uh, innocent looking waiter uh, who spills a I don't I, I I never catch what this drink is but it's some sort of weird yellow drink that could stain. So the the waiter basically goes oh let's let's uh, this will stain so let's let's go to the 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 restroom and, and and wash it out. Yes, uh, yeah, I forget what what the drink is too, but you know, I, I, and and it's it's a good line that Jack has. You know, like oh, I'm just gonna take my uh my brand salt, you know, and I'll take it to the uh, to the to the washroom with me, whatever he says. But I, I I like you, I forget what what the drink is. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. They go into uh they go into the bathroom so they can like kind of. Get the um, get the stain out of his jacket, even though you can't really even see the stain. But and that's when um, we find out that this waiter's name is Delbert Grady, not Charles, now, Grady. <laughs> not Charles Grady, Delbert Grady, Delbert Grady. But before we get to that, so, have you ever seen a creepier looking bathroom than this? Than this bathroom? Oh, have uh, you cut out? Have I ever seen a a creepier looking bathroom than this bathroom? No, you mean with with the, with the red? Oh, well, I don't know what production design choice uh, that was, or whoever made that choice. But I mean, spot on for the creepy factor. That's what you were going for. Yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, he says Delbert Grady, and then uh, Jack asks him, uh, "Weren't you the caretaker here before?" I'm sorry, sir. You must have me confused with some. He uh, says it was great, and then he's like, "Yes, you were the caretaker here." Uh, and uh, you chopped your wife into little bitty bits and blew your brains out. And he's like, I don't seem to recall that, sir. Call that, sir. This <laughs> awesome. This whole scene is awesome. Yeah, it's a really creepy scene. It's really unsettling. Um, and because uh, he says, because Mr. Grady's line is really. Um, it always haunts me, and, and it's because it, I don't know why. Because it's just such a creepy ghost story line. And he goes, "I'm sorry to differ with you, sir, um, uh, but you are the caretaker. You've always been the caretaker. I should the know caretaker. because I've always been here." Which that's going to play into the end, which we're going to talk about obviously at the end. But let's not forget this little tidbit of what Grady just told him. You know, you, you've been the caretaker here. You've always been the caretaker, you know, and I, sh so let's just remember that for later. But I love like the, the guy's delivery. Um, I guess Philip Stone is the actor. I love his, his whole performance here, his whole delivery, especially when he starts talking about Danny, like, you know, your son is trying to bring an outsider 
into all of this or whatever the line is, right? And, and it's interesting and, you know, because you must correct him and you you must correct your wife. The way he says correct, bro. Yeah. And it's cre- the right amount of creepy and funny, in my opinion. And it's also interesting because up until that point, he was being very like, you know, oh, I'm so sorry, sir. Let me take care of that for you, sir. And then a second as he, after he says that you've always been the caretaker, he immediately turns menacing. So it's like a a complete turn, right? Um, and then he drops an end bomb, which Jack has to repeat for some reason. <laughs> oh, that's right. <laughs> and it's I, like, know, oh, I that's that out of my head. I remember. Uh, yeah, he does say that. Yeah, he drops an end bomb. Not just anybody, sir. Uh, yeah. And then Jack goes. Uh, and then Jack has Edward? to repeat it for whatever reason. <laughs> um, and he basically warns him that Danny has the shining, um, and he doesn't call it that. And he's but he's attempting to use it against your will. Um, and I think this is when he's like you said. This is when you correct them. Yes. Like, you know, what you must I forget what the line what the exact line is, but basically he's like he has to take care of the problem. His son is, you know, bringing this guy in who doesn't belong here, he's gonna ruin everything, so now you must take care of it. That's basically what this whole scene is about. Yeah. Um so it's a it's a creepy moment and this is like I mean that that is I think even though it's not like scary in the sense of um you know, jump scares or monsters or anything like that. It's, it just always, that scene always unnerves me. It's just really unsettling. Like from the second he, he switches and goes, you've always been the caretaker. That just creeps me out. Um, and then, uh, starting after that, uh, the scene after that is, uh, Danny kind of sitting up straight in his bed going red rum, red rum and freaking out his mom. Um, which would, you know, make sense. But at this point, so what, how do we explain this is like, he's, is Tony in control here? Like, is 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 his kind of, you know, alternate personality that he's taken to like help? Is that what's in what he what's in control here? Um, is that what's like trying to help him like, like protect himself? That's how I saw it, actually. Yeah, because um, I mean, how else could you explain? Like, just he starts going into these fits, you know, starts saying red rum, red rum, uh, constantly. Like you said, just freaking out Wendy. But like, what other explanation would there be other than like his? Is Tony, quote unquote, his shining or his shining is already going into like that protect mode for for Danny and kind of just trying to get him to either cope or just kind of get through the situation because they because you know Tony quote quote unquote um so he's kind of already getting I guess Danny prepared like mentally in a way you know um so then we get a series of scenes of of, uh, of Dick uh, trying to get in trying to get up to uh to Colorado for, you know he's on a plane um, he tries to rent a car. Um, and, uh, he dri- he's driving up there in like these crazy roads, um, and kind of, and Danny's still kind of catatonic, not really talking, still only talking through Tony. Um, Jack is kind of just typing away in, in his, uh, typing away in his, in his room. Um, and when Wendy goes to, to, to go see him, he's not at the desk, but then she looks at the typewriter to see what he's been typing. And this is when we get kind of the, uh, um, Infamous, uh, all work and no play makes Jack a doll boy over and over and over again. Yep. Uh, well, real quick, going back to uh, to to Dick. Um, so 
the, I love the the uh, the phone conversation that he has with to get the snowcat. <laughs> like he basically has to lie to him. He's like, oh, you know, all men is calling me back up here, you know, because those caretakers that we hired turned out to be nothing but unreliable assholes. <laughs> So he, the old man called me up to see if I should go down there and see if they need to be replaced. You know, that, that's just a, I love that whole conversation they have. But what, and, what, and what annoys me, though, is that Tony Byrne should have told him to throw the damn towel in and just I was go about home. to say, that's Duke. <laughs> Some boy Duke. <laughs> that's right. Um, but yeah, she sees just pages and pages and pages of the all work and no play make Jack a doll boy. Um, and, uh, she starts freaking out because, of course, she would. That's a really creepy thing to find. But she has her. She has a baseball bat, uh, and uh, Jack is like, "Do you like it?" Uh, and then this is now uh, when he starts going full like crazy mode, and he starts like uh, trying to attack, uh, trying to attack Wendy. He's like, "Do you have any idea the responsibility I have for my employer?" <laughs> um, and uh, he goes into one of one of his one of his lines like, "I'm not going to hurt you. I just want to bash your brains in." Effing brains in. That's right. Uh, that's a great line. I want to bash them right the f in. Uh, if you um, YouTube that that just a specific clip. If you try to YouTube it, um, ninety percent of the comments are going to be the Simpsons quote where Homer's like, "Give me the bet. Give me the bet." Uh, like I can now I can never like give me the bat scene because it's just it's, it's perfect. <laughs> like the what a perfect parody they did, man! This is awesome. It really was. When I was watching it, I was like, they really hit like all the highlights really good. Yeah, and, and you know what would have been better for Wendy instead of you know seeing you know all work and no play, just one paper that says feeling fine. Like, oh, that's a relief. <laughs> all work and no play make Homer something something something. No TV and no beer make homers. Um, so as he's, as that, he's that's just brilliant. Yeah, as he's stalking Wendy up the stairs, she gets in a lucky shot and smacks him on the head, knocking him down the stairs. He's unconscious, and then we see her dragging his uh, his limp body over to the storage room, and she locks him in there for her own protection. Now it was, I think, the scene right before this where you saw that he took he like messed with the radio and sabotaged the radio. Now you uh, stay here so you're no longer insane. <laughs> be good tonight. <laughs> and this is one of my favorite shots. Um, as he's begging to come out, it's like an underneath shot at Jack at the door as he's as he's uh, trying to beg to come out. He's like, "Oh, Wendy, you hurt me real bad." But uh, it, it's a great like it's just a great. I don't know. It's a great shot of of, of what he it, like. It just makes him look even crazy, crazier. Yeah, it, uh, again, just like, you know, perfect shot right there of just already, like, to this film as far as, like, seeing, like, just Jack's completely deteriorating state. And, you know, we're up to that point now. We're just like that. That's just the perfect shot of just at the point that we're at right now. It's not even the worst point of the movie as far as, like, Jack and how he is. But, like, it's it's a good snapshot of where we're at at this point. It, it's just just great. Um, so Wendy, after locking him in there, sees that the snowcat has been sabotaged as well, and uh, we cut back to Jack in the storage room, and we hear him talking to Mr. Grady. You don't see Mr. Grady; you just hear him talking to him. And uh, Mr. Grady is like, "You've not taken care of the situation," and he's like, "I'll deal with the situation as soon as I get out." <laughs> um, and um, 
<laughs> Homer, it's Mo. Listen, some of the ghouls and I are a little concerned the project isn't moving forward. Can't talk now. Eating. Oh, for crying out loud. And then freaking, <laughs> they pull him out. Like Freddy Krueger's there. And a bunch of, and I think a Pinhead is one of the guys too that pulls him out. Um, Yeah. And uh, so in, perfect parody. In this, in this situ- situation, basically, Mr. Grady manages to get him out of the uh, get him out of the storage storage room, but um, right after this, we see that uh, Wendy has been sleeping, um, and she wakes up to D- Danny once again screaming "Red rum, red rum!" as he writes it on the on the door in like a lipstick or something or a crayon. I can't remember. Yeah. Um, and uh, as she sees, she freaks out. She sees it in the mirror, and of course, red rum backwards is murder. Um, now. Uh, Right after this, this is when uh, Jack comes to the, uh, comes swinging his axe, full full blown crazy, and knocks down the first uh, the first door with his axe, and then comes into the 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 apartment more or less, and then starts swinging the axe at the bathroom window. While he's doing that, Danny manages to escape out the window, but you know the uh, Wendy can't fit through it. Um, and of course, this is where we get the very famous line: "Here's Johnny." Um, interesting to note about this, uh, is that, uh, originally when they were filming this, uh, uh, this scene, they were using fake doors, but, uh, Jack Nicholson actually had training as a firefighter, uh, whenever he was a younger man uh, and he, he's, he was able to take down the, uh, the door rather quickly on the fake door. So they actually went to using a real door. So every time you see him taking that down, Smart. that's not a. It's not a fake door. It's really Jack Nicholson breaking down a door with an axe, um, which is kind of cool. Yeah, which which is great. It's great. Yeah. And then I'm, and I'm of course, sure like you... he, that. No, I was gonna say like, like this is when we get the uh, the famous David Letterman. Quote. <laughs> I laughed so hard at that when I saw that. <laughs> um, but uh, and the other and the other thing that I that I liked about uh, about the scene. Um, is there? I'm not sure if you've ever heard of a movie called The Phantom Carriage. Have you ever heard of it? In passing, you know, but I don't actually. I don't know what it's about. When it was made, who's in it? I just I've heard it in passing. It's like before. it's like a Swedish movie from the 20s. I think it's Swedish, um, and yeah. it's a horror movie. It's on the Criterion Collection, um, but it's about. Um, very briefly, uh, it's about basically it's pretty avant garde, but the the kind of like the the plot is more or less, um, you know, the Grim Reaper is coming coming around like taking people, and like, uh, you know, there are two guys that like kind of write like kind of come come with him as he does his job, but there's a scene in there of of a guy going after his wife with an axe and chopping down a door, and a lot of people think that this is Kubrick, uh, paying a specific homage to that. Which I mean, I mean, I could see that, um, but well, one of the things that I wanted to mention also real quick before, um, before when uh, Grady released Jack from the stockroom, I think Kubrick's got on record saying that this is like the only event in the movie that can only be explained by the supernatural. Yes, and I was going to get to that when we we had our discussion. If that happens, the... despite what many people might believe. There's a, uh, I mean, there's ways. To, I guess there's ways to explain around it, right? That doesn't have to revolve around, oh, it was the ghost or it was supernatural. But that one scene that can only be explained by it was the ghost that did it, the supernatural element. 
So I thought that was kind of cool. Yeah, um, and that that is that always goes to my that's always my main reasoning as to why I think uh, as to what I think is really happening in the film. Um, again, we'll we'll, we'll we'll circle back on that. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention about this specific scene uh, in, in the bathroom is, again, just marveling at Shelley Long's performance here. Shelley, not Shelley Long, Shelley Duvall's performance here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> because there's the great shot as she's in the bathroom holding the knife, and this is an extended shot of you uh, of the uh, axe going through the door over and over and over again, um, and. The one time that the axe goes all the way through, she she just has this like petrified. She looks scared out of her mind, and it is one of like the best like scared performances like of all time, I think. Um, but before he can yeah. get to, I mean, it's highlight reels. Yeah, before he can get to Wendy, we hear we they hear a snowcat on the outside, and it's uh, Dick coming in to try and save the day. Uh, so he kind of leaves Wendy uh he leaves Wendy at that point. Meanwhile Danny is kind of running through the uh through the hallways trying to get away uh trying to get away from Jack as well. Yeah and then uh so so Dick walks in he tries to uh I, I mean he doesn't really actually know what's going on per se. He just knows okay Danny's in trouble you know he's already kind of fearing the worst so he walks in but unfortunately he can't really do much because Jack ambushes poor Dick and actually kills him here as opposed to the novel where Dick actually lives. But uh, I think he just gets wounded in the novel. But here he actually kills him. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a pretty good jump scare, actually, because he does just come out of nowhere. You kind of know he's coming, but, like, uh, he just does really come out of nowhere. And then, you know, we get Danny's, you know, pet, like, just completely terrified face as he as he because you you kind of like maybe think that maybe he's experiencing as it, as it's happening because of his connection to Dick, um, and then as he hears him, uh, you, you get this like slow motion like not really slow motion but this like rising into frame of Jack like looking looking as he hears Danny and he's like now he's found them and he's gonna go kill him. And unfortunately, uh, there was a deleted scene here also with uh, Dick's final words. You know, is that the best you can? And then he died. So um, now Shelly is running through the through the hotel, and she starts experiencing her own supernatural phenomenon. Uh, one of them is a a man in a bear suit, pleasuring another man. We'll say. Oh, I can't. I, <laughs> I I can't even begin to explain this. However, having said that, I actually own the pin from that Mondo sold with direct. Most reading of, of The Shining, they had uh, commemorative pins, and one of them is of the little dog man or whatever, bear, whatever the heck he is. So I actually own that, a pin of that character, even though we only saw him that one time. But <laughs> uh, it's, I don't know. It was one of those, like, off the cuff, like, um, you know how, like, they have those, um, like, you go to go to any store, they have, like, the, the uh, last minute items by the register, like the candy and the gum and, like, the magazines. That ended up being one of those, like, impulse buys for me, just that little pin. So. <laughs> now, what I'm really upset about is but that yes. we never get, we never got to see Bear Man return in Doctor. I, do we know what's? I think I know what's happening. I can't really say. <laughs> um, but I think it's you can kind of somewhat imply, but I'd I'd rather not discuss it at that. Point. Yeah, I'm just gonna say that there's a adult relationship happening in that scene. 
Um, there you go. As PG as possible. Perfect. Yeah. Uh, so so Danny has run into the hedge maze out into in the in the in the in the, uh, in the snowstorm as Jack follows him uh, throughout the hedge maze. Um, Wendy is still running into stuff. She runs into the the uh, well. She sees Dick's like murdered body. She freaks out about that. Uh, she sees the guy with the uh, blood coming down his head. Nice party or great party, whatever he says. She sees great the blood party, coming out it? of the elevator. Um, so she's experiencing all this other supernatural. Oh, she sees the um, the elevator with blood. Oh, she sees the uh, uh, the main lobby is now suddenly overcome with cobwebs and skeletons. Um, so all sorts of creepy stuff is happening. And I think right after this, this is where um the the she sees the blood right from the elevator. Yeah, she sees the blood coming out of the elevator. Yeah, um, <laughs> that's another great because first you see it in the vision, but now like at least according to Wendy, it's actually there, and she's like just starts flipping out like this. Just a great reaction from her just seeing that. Like, I mean, how else could you react to seeing blood coming out of an elevator? Exactly. Um. So Danny, she makes it out of the hotel. Danny makes it out of the maze, and Jack is still in the maze trying to find, trying to kill Danny. Uh, he, he, you know, uh, Danny meets up with his mom. They get into Dick's snowcat, and they escape in that. And then the next shot we see is Jack has been frozen in the snow because uh, he's uh, from exposure. He died of exposure. One of the things that I think um, is cool about that scene is like all the shots of. Like a, like the silhouettes of of Jack stalking uh, uh, Danny in that hedge maze are just like iconic, like great iconic shots. Yeah, this is and just every everything about that whole hedge maze scene, that climax. It's just it's great. Like even um the way Danny outsmarts him, just kind of by retracing his steps. Just really, uh, I mean, it, it it was logical and it, it it fit like you know it fit the story, you know, because now like because Jack is just so like at this point like he's he's gone, Jack is gone at this point, and the fact that like Danny was, you know, this was kind of you know not so much um like he wasn't like it wasn't like a brilliant strategy, but it was just something like just something that like Danny could think of like okay, he's gonna he's tracking me from from you know my feet in the snow why don't i just retrace my steps that way you know there's nothing for him to follow anymore and then eventually like jack just in his crazy state just gets lost in the maze gets trapped you know and danny's able to find his way out to his mom and then they escape in the snowcat and then that's when we get the uh, the now memed image of the dead the frozen body of jack. I saw earlier today in a great meme which we won't get into cuz we're not going to get political here so um then we uh, we cut to uh, after Jack. We cut to like the back to the hallway by the gold uh, by the gold room, and we get a nice steady shot, a steady cam shot, walking towards this wall of pictures that we've actually seen before. Like that, it's always been like if you anytime they're near the gold room, you actually see that wall of pictures. Um, but now you see it like it closes in on it and it zooms in, and then we see there's Jack in this picture. And it says New Year's Eve ball, I think, uh, nineteen twenty-seven, July Fourth ball. Oh, I thought it was a New Year's Eve ball. Yeah, it was a July Fourth. Okay, I was wrong. Uh, it was still it's a ball, <laughs> July Fourth yeah. ball, nineteen twenty-seven. Um, and so 
again going and going back to the you've always been you've always been the caretaker. So then the movie ends, uh, and that's The Shining. Now let's let's talk about this now. The yeah, I mean I mean Kubrick. Uh, before we start, just I just want to say Kubrick is very good at just making the types of movies or putting stuff at the end of his movies that just make you walk out of the theater saying, what the hell was that? Like, I mean, 2001 is notorious for that. This movie, like he, I mean, that kudos to to his skill to be able to get like paid 90% of the audience to just come out saying the exact same phrase to themselves or to their companions. Like, what the hell did I just watch? Now, before, before we get to the, um, before we get to the, uh, to our discussion here about what's what's actually going on there was a different ending um there was a scene with wendy uh talking to Ullman in a hospital um who says that uh, jack's body couldn't be found um and it was it was ultimately taken out now um i've never seen the scene so i don't know like how it plays out but it's i think it's a good call because i don't think it exists I mean, I mean, it exists, but nowhere like on physical media, because I mean, if the story that I read is correct, like when they had the scene removed, like they actually had the pro- the projectionist cut out the scene from the film and send it back to Warner Brothers. So I don't know if they kept it, if they destroyed it or so. Who knows if we'll ever get to see that scene. Kind of Kubrick and the Kubrick estate is very picky in particular with how, you know, they handle all of his all of his works. So. See that scene, um, so, if it even still exists. So again, so now there's to, to discuss here. There's always been a um, uh, a debate as to what is actually happening because, uh, you know, in the book it is much more clear that the hotel is haunted, um, and that all the st- uh, that that there is a supernatural element happening. Um, in the movie. Um, Kubrick kind of blurs the line a little bit, um, and you're you maybe think maybe it's the cabin fever, maybe it's the alcoholism, uh, all this stuff that that could potentially be, um, uh, you know, it, influencing Jack. So the ultimate question has always been, is the hotel haunted or is Jack crazy? Um, I've always fallen on the side of the hotel is haunted, and it's making Jack crazy. Well, that's a nice uh, middle of the road answer. I don't there. think it's a middle of the road because I, I, I think <laughs> that it's clear that the hotel is haunted, um, and and what it's doing by haunting is 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 influencing Jack specifically, um, like because and Danny as well because um, Wendy doesn't really experience anything until the very end. Um, Danny. Is only Danny's experiencing things because he's got like an like an insight to it, but it's specifically targeting Jack. Um, so it, it is haunted and it's messing with Jack specifically. I mean, I'm like I already I, I think I mentioned it earlier. My belief, at least my headcanon watching it, is that you know the hotel is haunted, and I guess because Jack is already coming in to the hotel, like initially, just kind of already in. Not so much a, you know, regressed mental state, but he's already kind of, he's kind of basically prime meat for for the hotel to kind of have his way with, have its way with, I should say. So, 
it's just one of those things where I think maybe, again, I purely speculation, but maybe a stronger individual mentally probably could have repelled a lot of, you know, the hotel. Maybe it would have been ineffective against another person. But because Jack was already coming in kind of already in that kind of, I don't want to say mood. Mood is the wrong word. But basically in that already mental state that he was in, he became more susceptible to the hotel's like parlors and tricks. Yeah, I I definitely see that. Um, I think it has to, I mean, the hotel is definitely haunted. It's It's not Jack imagining things because there's too many things that happen in the movie that can't be explained by his just being crazy. The mo- the main one being what we already discussed that Jack is able to get out of the storage room from the from the inside when it's locked from the outside. That can only like you said before can only be explained by the supernatural. Right. But the other thing even is even Kubrick said the same thing. But the other thing is is that both Danny and Wendy experience supernatural events in the film. Danny experience with room 237 specifically Danny is yeah you could say oh he did it to himself but uh, that's that's a that's a cop out like Danny experiences a supernatural yeah. occurrence in room 237 he sees he Danny sees the the Grady twins he sees he he foresh- he can see the the blood coming out of the elevator um and Wendy at the very end starts seeing everything like she starts, you know, like we, we went over it. She starts seeing all this stuff going through it. That can only be explained through the supernatural. And I heard someone once like I think someone on my Facebook explained it as um, it could be it could be explained by like a mass hallucination. I don't buy that. Um, uh, I think that it's pretty, the movie's being pretty straightforward and telling you that, yeah, the hotel's haunted and every all this stuff is happening. Like and like it's just it's that one moment that you know we already talked out of the store uh, the stock room, I mean it can only be explained one way. So if that's the case, then obviously there is something super at this hotel and about room two thirty seven in particular, which is why of course Dick was telling Danny stay away from that room. You know stuff's going on there. So maybe I don't know maybe that's like the main hub or the heart of the hotel where you know kind of all these things start happening or maybe where all the things get released from that room i mean we don't really know that but you can easily speculate because that's you know the room that you know danny goes in that jack goes in and then they start seeing all this stuff so again like i don't know what other arc i mean jack's crazy or his family's crazy like that's kind of a wild one but i don't know that it can be any other reason other than the hotel is haunted the hotel is supernatural like what else could it be yeah i i it has to be um it has to be haunted there's nothing else now we as we said um earlier and we'll talk a little bit about this movie um doctor sleep the the sequel that came out last year like ob- objectively answers that question um it objectively says the hotel is haunted um, but uh, yes. I, I want to get into that a little bit later. But before we do that, Room 237, this documentary that came out, um, came out maybe like six or seven years ago. Um, and it is basically this documentary where uh, it has several different people that have come up with these different theories as to what The Shining is about or what is quote unquote really about. Um, and so it's an enter- it's an entertaining watch. It's an interesting movie because it doesn't show like it's like a talking head 
documentary, but you don't see the talking heads. You just hear them the whole time. Um, and right. as they go through their different uh, uh, theories, and all you see is the footage in the movie. You don't see anything else. Um, and there are a couple different um, theories that they have uh, throughout the film. Um, uh, some of the more amusing ones. You already mentioned the Minotaur, which I think is very silly. Um, it, and they talk about the, the thing there is about yeah. the hedge maze and, you know, whatever. Um, I think that one's kind of dumb. The most <laughs> notable one, uh, the three most notable ones, I think, are the one about the the um, how the country has cheated Native Americans, the one about yes. um, the Holocaust, and the one about... Uh, the Kubrick allegedly faking the moon landing. I'm not saying they're all good theories. I'm saying they're the most notable ones. Um, right. Let's let's talk about the moon landing one. <laughs> um, this guy goes into a lot of effort to like say that the reason he does he made the shining is to like as an apology to America for faking the moon landing, including pointing to things like the Apollo 11 sweatshirt that he's wearing, uh, about how room 237 is a nod that the Earth is 237,000 miles from the moon, and it's not. It's 238,000 miles. <laughs> but, you know, um, and all sorts of other stuff, like the carpet pattern is supposed to represent, like, uh, like, the launch pad or something. I don't know. It's a ridiculous theory. Hey, I mean, listen, with the way that this guy with such a lack of effort seems to pull all this stuff out of his ass, I'd be very surprised if he didn't have a closet full of red hats, bro. Like legit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's all I'm going to that's all I'm going to say on this matter because it's such a ridiculous like I was watching this I was I was watching this and His reasoning and like what this man and what this man. I just kept shouting like "f you" at the screen, like like get the f out of here. Like it's just so he was really reaching for a lot of this stuff, like the freaking uh, like the key on room thirty seven that says room N O, like the abbreviation for number, and then like oh if it is an anagram for moon room, like this was the moon room or what? Like, come on, bro! Like oh my god, what is the anagram just, for moon room? Like it, so on if you. In the scene where like Danny's about to go into like the, it's in there right because the door's been unlocked. So on the little key handle it says room, and then it has the letters N O for like the abbreviation for number, and it says two thirty seven. Well, if you take the letters R O O M and then the N O, the only phrase you can spell with those letters are moon room. So that this stupid. was Kubrick's. Yes, it is very stupid, but. <laughs> But that's, that's so apparently, <laughs> and of course, like they they picked the number two thirty seven because distance from the Earth to the Moon is two hundred thirty seven thousand miles. You know, Danny had the Apollo eleven sweater on, and that scene also when he saw the the Moon Room key. <laughs> yeah, it's really stupid. Oh, it's really it's so um, stupid. Like the, that was, I guess that's the only that was the only argument or theory from that movie that actually made me angry because of how stupid it was like it insulted my intelligence um the other one that's interesting is the 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 uh the native american one because there is a lot of native american imagery like on the walls and things like that like it's, it's you can barely notice it but it's there 
Um, and it is yes. they do make a special point of talking about how it's um, built on Native uh, Native American burial ground, things like that. I don't know if that is accurate, but it, it's the one that holds the most water for me. I think um, so too. I agree because it, there is just some because you know the the hotel is a set. All of that is a set. So when they so anything that's on the walls and any decoration that's in there is specifically um, has been specifically added, right? So you don't put that stuff there by mistake. So that that there is some credence to that. I don't. Again, I don't know if that's specifically it, uh, because Kubrick was also kind of a nut, and he liked to mess with people, like. I mean, just for example, the whole Delbert Grady, Charles Grady thing. Some people like take that to mean like, you know, oh, you've been the care- you've always been the caretaker. Like Charles Grady uh, and Delbert Grady were two different people, but because the hotel is all has this knack of making them think uh, that they've always been there, you know, it's he thought he was the same person as that caretaker, and that's blah 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 blah. Right. But it could just be that they made a typo. You know what I mean? And they just didn't. They yeah, just could it could just it. be continuity error. Exactly. It just could be continuity error. Like in the, it, it, so you can't be sure with Kubrick. So that's why I'm not completely sure about the name American thing, but it does hold the most water. Um, the, I'm kind of half and half on the Holocaust one. Um, I could see what they're, they talk about some of them, but I, I don't think it's as strong as the Native American one. Yes, yeah, some of the the, the quote unquote proof that it's about the Holocaust was very um, that it, it seemed almost as half assed as the 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 Apollo Eleven stuff. But uh, even like the 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 guy made a very big deal typewriter, right? Even though um, I forgot who it was, I think it was um, uh, uh, the Kubrick's assistant, Leon Vitali. He even went on to say that like you know the the typewriter is just a typewriter, like they just picked it for practical reasons. It wasn't like any big hidden meaning or anything. This just that was the typewriter he wanted. <laughs> it was just, but you know what? It, a lot of what a lot, the thing that perpetrates a lot of these theories though is the fact that it's Stanley Kubrick. If anybody else, you know, made The Shining or like let, let's just use The Shining, you know, for this argument's sake, right? If any other director made this movie. I don't think anybody would be looking into it as much as they would. Even, you know, they'd hawk up the Delbert Grady thing as a continuity error. They wouldn't even think twice about it, right? But because it's Kubrick, and he kind of has this reputation for, like, being this, like, not, I don't want to say a perfect filmmaker, but, like, the one that has, like, the most meticulous hold on all his productions. Like, he, you know, if he's going to put this typewriter here, it has to be this brand for this specific reason, right? Yeah, and that's the paintings thing. or these Indian pictures on the wall. He's gonna do it for this specific reason, you know. There's and like that, there's no other like explanation to these people. Like it's Kubrick, so he does this on purpose. Everything, he literally everything he does on purpose. Yeah, and and it would it could have been something like as as simple as, okay, yes, this 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 typewriter represents blah 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 blah, or it could be they showed him like four different typewriters and he like I like that one. You know what I mean? Like it doesn't yeah, exactly. You know, it, it doesn't matter. Um, so it's, it's just one of those things that it's an interesting, you know, but like, again, it's Kubrick, like you said, he could be messing with you or, or he could just, or it could mean, it could mean everything or it could mean nothing, you know? Exactly. 
And he was very notorious to not explain his decisions. He just kind of, he believed in letting the audience make their own interpretation, which I agree with, you know. But uh, some of these theories, man, like even uh, even uh, Vitaly said, like, some, if he watched, he goes, like, if he watched Room 30, 237, he would just laugh at a lot of these theories. They'd just be, like, way off the mark. Yeah. Um, but nonetheless, it's My an favorite one, though, is what... Yeah, my favorite one though is not so much the theory is when um when the guy um did the screening of the um the simultaneous the shining but backwards and forwards that one was cool I I, I got a kick out of that one that was probably my favorite segment because uh, it's, and I, albeit it's unintentional but like you like you kind of see like the parallels of like when certain scenes align up you know in their states of going backwards and forward it's really cool like the effect that you get like. It, Mm. Away. So that was my favorite segment. Like I might, I don't think anybody's really doing that though. So I don't know if there's a way for me to actually watch it that way. <laughs> but it'd be a cool like if, if they ever decide to do like a screening like that. I'd I'd be the first in line to check it out. It'd be a difficult thing to set up, but it'd be interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it's uh, it's an interesting documentary. I think you should check it out. Um, if you if you have a chance. Uh, unfortunately. It's not streaming anywhere for free right now. You can buy it or rent it digitally, but there's no free service or there's no subscription service that that is currently streaming it. So uh, you'll you'll have to if you really want to watch it, you'll have to buy or rent it. Um, the other thing uh, I wanted to talk about was Doctor Sleep. Now, Doctor Sleep um, was a movie that came out last year, uh, pretty much around this time. I think we, I think we reviewed it. We, well, you reviewed it on Force Perspective. I never actually, I had not seen it yet, but I watched it specifically for this episode of the, for this podcast, so I could kind of since we are since I was already watching The Shining, and I pretty much watched them back to back. I don't remember what was your take on on Doctor Sleep at the time. Yes, so I'm very curious about uh, about your take because I I wanted to go into a more in depth review on Force Perspective whenever you got around to seeing it because this was one of my favorite movies of last year. Just really amazing stuff the way that mike flanagan the director was able to kind of bridge the two um the novel and the film into this sequel was just i just brilliant just brilliant uh brilliant screenplay that he that he wrote um yeah just you know narrative quality i think and then they had the fan service aspect of it too which i mean i popped especially that final sequence at the overlook was just oh man i was popping the entire time yeah, I, I enjoyed the film, um, but I, I felt like there was something about it that I don't know if I ever felt that much of a threat from the villains because um, the the main character, or not the main character, but um, uh, Abra, who's like the little girl that um, Danny Lloyd as a grown-up is, is not, not Danny Lloyd, Danny Lloyd's the actor's name, Danny Torrance, um, Ewan McGregor is uh is trying to help um because she also has the shining is like established very early on as really powerful and like now I know that's why like that crew what do they call that crew in the movie I can't remember um but where Rose the Hat and uh yeah well their name. the true knot is the group what's their name the true knot the true knot okay I understand why yeah. they wanted to like you know absorb her because she was she had so much like ener- mystical energy or whatever, but because she was like in all their interactions like she like 
got the better of Rose like every single time. So that when it came down to like the like the big like showdown, like I felt like <laughs> I didn't think Rose was that you. much of a threat. You know what I mean? Um, to put it in wrestling terms, you're saying that they couldn't get any heat on her, basically. Yeah, so there exactly. was no like suspense for you. Yeah. Now I think um, threat. Uh, what's the actress's name? Um, who plays Rose? Oh, I know it. It's uh, Rebecca... Rebecca Ferguson. Ferguson, thank you. Um, I think she was excellent in the role, and like she had like yeah, really amazing. great, like v- like put in a great villainous performance. But I just felt like she got she was just a little bit toothless because every time she met up with Abra, she got she got her ass kicked. Um, and uh, but like she is responsible for like bringing back all like the the ghosts from the from the Overlook, which I thought was great. Now, like I said, the this movie does explicitly say yeah, the hotel just, is. Uh, I mean, I really. In- yeah, exactly. There you go. So, like, Doctor Sleep pretty much puts that argument to bed. Um, but um, not to go. Well, actually, you know what? It's only a year old, so I don't want to get into like spoiler, spoiler territory as far as Doctor Sleep. But uh, let's just say that 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 those final thirty minutes, edge on my seat. I was just so excited for it. We're back at the Overlook, <laughs> and you know I, that's as far as I'm going to go with that. But there yeah. was a lot of very. Yeah, I liked the movie. Yeah, I enjoyed. I liked the movie up until they got to the Overlook, and once they got to the Overlook, that's when I really started enjoying it because then it got, it was all the call. Like it was a, it was, it was, it was a fine movie up until then, but then when they got to the Overlook, that's when it got really fun, um, because all the all the uh, callbacks to the um to the Shining, especially like the actors they got to play the roles were very good. Obviously, you can't get the the same actors unless you did like the de-aging CGI trick, but um, you can't get the same actors. Like, the guy they got for Jack Torrance was great, and it's freaking Elliot from E.T. Yes! I didn't catch that at first. <laughs> I caught it on the second view, I was like, wait a minute, like, this guy looks so familiar, like, because he looked familiar when I first saw it, but I, I didn't really, like, care enough to check. And then when I saw it the second time, I was like, this guy looks so familiar, so I actually cared enough to check at that point, and yeah, freaking Elliot, bro. <laughs> Yeah, that was weird. Um, but like you see Grady for for like a little bit. He looked the actor they got for him looked really spot on. Um, and like all the different ghosts they got in for for that sequence is really cool. They got they got the guy they got for Scatman Carruthers like looked good. Um, yeah, Ewan McGregor was great in the role. Um, and uh, the roles that uh, Rebecca Ferguson and I forget the little girl who played Abra, but it, it's really well acted. It's really fun. Um, that last 30 minutes is just all fan service, and I loved it. Uh, it they really did a good job replicating the, the overlook. Um, but again, I just felt like there was just no suspense with defeating the villain because I just felt like the villain had already been defeated already, you know. Now they do a twist at the end where there's like a secondary threat at the overlook i'm not going to get into it right. for spoiler reasons and then then i did feel like okay this is a threat this is legitimate but before that uh i just i just felt like rose was imposing a threat because she had i almost feel like they shouldn't have had those scenes early on like they should have cut them out because like they should have done something where she noticed that who this girl was and 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 connected with her that way but to like show her get defeated so often just felt like it just made it a little toothless i think for me 
that early scene of them killing the boy is what that kind of so it, it, it gave disturbing. It, it that's what gave I, I guess it earned them their heat for me personally. So after that scene, like you know, they earned like the, the threat heat. Yeah, but to me, the, the it, lead it, villains like they earned their heat with that scene to me. It, to me, they they it, it earned the evil, right? But again, it didn't. But like again, I don't want to go into spoilers. But when the majority of them are dispatched at some point in the film, I felt like it was too easy, you know? Right. Um, and that's 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 my own thing. But I I, I think it's a fun film. I'm gonna like I'll I'll get around to like yeah. buying. Point. Um, it, it's a fun sequel to The Shining. It's a much different movie than The Shining, um, because it's really more of like um, I don't even know how to describe. It. I mean, it is a horror movie, but it's not really scary until the end. Like the end is the really scary part. Um, but like the rest of it is just kind of like supernatural fantasy kind of movie. Um, and the really, yeah. except for the when they killed the boy, and that is legitimately disturbing. Um, but the rest of it's just kind of like not scary. It's just like, oh, weird things are happening. It's a bit of a mystery. And then um, these these guys over here, they're like kind of creepy and they're, they're doing bad things. But it's not really until they get to the Overlook where it like goes into like horror movie mode. Yes. But uh, it was one of my favorite movie experiences in the theater last year, which is an experience that I sorely missed in 2020. But uh, Yeah. I, uh, I wish I could have seen it with an audience because I, I imagine like an audience, like once like the – once the – um. Shining references started coming in. I can only imagine the audience going, "Oh, you know what I mean?" Like that would have been fun. Now, did you watch our extended version, or would you watch it theatrical? You know what? I don't know. I, I I honestly don't know which one I saw. Um, I don't know the difference, so I, I can't tell. Yeah, yeah. Because over the weekend, I I actually watched the um the extended for the first time. This was okay. my third viewing of Doctor Sleep, but this was the first time watching the extended. And to be honest, I couldn't really tell what was added. I know it was a whole half hour. I think a lot of the um, backstory, there was a lot more of like young Danny scene. Okay. That I think were not in the... So um, I think that's the only part, but it added up to about an extra half hour. So it's like a three hour film at that point. So it's like watching Endgame, basically. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I don't think I then I don't think I saw the the extended because I only saw my movie was like maybe like two and a half hours or so. I don't think it was three hours. Yeah, so yeah, the two and a half hours is the the theatrical. So three hours is the extended. Okay. Yeah, I yeah I definitely didn't see the the extended. It's interesting because like the what they add in, it's it'd be interesting to see what they add in. Like if if it's young Danny stuff, the only thing I can remember with Danny was at the beginning you see him like with his mom, you see him having to deal with his ghosts. Yeah. Um, and then he, you see how he learns how to deal with the ghosts, and that's it. Like I don't know what else you would do. You need to see there, like or what they, else they would have yeah, added and, there. And one thing I did notice that was different was that in the theatrical, kind of just it played straight. Uh, it was straight narrative. In the extended version, it's actually divided into chapters. So I think there's like I think seven or eight chapters, and they're all like hey, like you know, chapter one, chapter two, chapter three. So, hmm. interesting. The other thing I liked about it, too, was that at the end, like after the credits, there's actually a big note from Mike Flanagan saying, you know, thank you to the Kubrick estate for letting me do this. My my director's vision of Dr. Sleep. Thank you to Stephen King. And it's just it's just this big, like, you know, thank you to everybody that actually allowed him like to Warner Brothers for letting him do this version. 
you know, this is his definitive version of Dr. Sleep. So, you know, and I mean, credit to Mike Flanagan, too, because this is the, the adaptation that Stephen King now cites as like he because of this movie, because of Mike Flanagan, he was able to now reconcile Bricks the Shining. Like everything that that got wrong, Mike Flanagan made right in Dr. Sleep. So now he can kind of put. Kubrick's is shining to bed as far as like hating it or whatever. So, yeah, and it's interesting because it works really well as a sequel to the movie The Shining. Um, but it sounds like it also works as a good sequel to the book The Shining, right? He kind of had tried to balance the two because when he first wanted to do it, like he wanted to add, like he wanted to make it more of a Kubrick sequel, but you know, Stephen King, like, kind of Mike Lennon kind of explained to him what he wanted to do and how he wanted to combine the two. He was on board. And then the final product, just according to Stephen King, just blew him away. So he was just so happy with how it turned out. So let's let's get into Stephen King's <laughs> a little bit here. Um, for yeah. a long time, Stephen King kind of infamously or famously or however you want to put it, like hated the film. Um, but like he would kind of go back. The and creator who hates his own creation. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Um, <laughs> he would kind of go back and forth on it like he did. um he he on one hand would say that he didn't like how it was so vague that the hotel whether the hotel was haunted or not um where like he his book i guess was more explicit i've never read the book so i I can't i can't comment on it um where in the book it's more explicit that it's haunted um and he also had a problem with the um and i disagree with him on this but he also had a problem that uh wendy was more of a let me see if i can find the quote here i wrote down um uh oh man i wrote it down i can't find it now oh she's basically just there to scream and be stupid and that's not the woman i wrote about um again i haven't read the book and wendy in the book so i don't know how different she is but um i don't think she's just there to scream and be stupid like i think that she's she does a lot of screaming and stuff but i think there's more to that performance than just that I agree. Like I said, like we talked about Shelley Duvall's performance and, you know, I mean, I can kind of see like certain might make come to that conclusion, but overall, I don't think she's like that at all. Um, the, uh, but he did, he did say like, he has said some other, he had said nice things about it. Um, before apparently coming to terms with it, he did say that, um, it was a poor adaptation, but that it had, but he does recognize that it made important uh, contributions to horror, the horror genre. So, like, he recognized that it was good filmmaking, but he hated the adaptation itself. Right. Yeah. Like, over the years, like, he would kind of change his stance in a way. Like, at first, he downright hated it. And then he'd say, oh, well, you know, it's a well made quote unquote film, but, you know, it's not my adaptation it's not my shining you know basically was hashtag not my shining uh and then uh and then he would like say like oh i know i he'll praise this aspect but still criticize this and then over the years he kind of just kind of go back and forth or change up what he was criticizing and but he kind of until now finally with dr sleep he's finally putting that to bed like he finally he he can live with it now because dr sleep made it better basically until he changes his mind again (laughs) pretty much um what's interesting is that this is one of the only films that he actually publicly comments on of his adaptations. Like he doesn't generally talk too much about like whether it's good or bad. 
like he doesn't go out of his way to talk too much about the adaptations. He kind of just goes, yeah, well, they made an adaptation. That's their thing, whatever. You know, like he doesn't t- talk too much about it. But The Shining is the one that he like goes out of his way to talk about. So that, that's that thing. Right. That's yeah. So it, it's it's not not really his thing. Yeah. Um, except when he pops up in in his movies, like in It Chapter Two. <laughs> I was little like, but there. It, it was, but it was also like, come on, th- that took me out of the movie a little bit to see him in that movie. <laughs> you know, I was like, all right, that's a little much, Stephen. Um, so uh, now they did come out with a, like you said, a mini series in 1997 uh, that was apparently was more faithful to the book, um, and. According to a lot of critics, it was not very good, <laughs> although it was uh, faithful to the book. Uh, again, I tried to uh, watch it for this show, but not available anywhere at all to stream. Uh, and I said, and and it was only available to buy on DVD on like, you know, th- through a used copy on Amazon. I was just not going to go through that trouble. So, um, <laughs> yeah, it was just not worth it for me. So sorry, guys. And I, again, I heard it's not that great anyway. So. Um, but yeah, if you, if you want to go out and try to find it, I'll probably revisit it one day if I can, like if, if it shows up on streaming or whatever, I'll definitely revisit it. Cause like I said, I haven't seen it since the initial airing on ABC. Um, now when it first was released, uh, we talked about it. It did receive mixed reviews. Um, it was not like now it's considered a horror classic. It's considered probably among the greatest horror films ever made. It's probably up, you know, like people talk about it in the same breath as they talk about the exorcist or Halloween or psycho, you know, it, it, it's one of the, like the main, it's one of like the, the quote unquote, the horror movies. Right. But back in the day when it came out, right. a lot of critics didn't like it. Uh, Ebert gave it two stars out of four, but he later re uh, reassessed it and then put it in his great movies book. So he did go back, rewatch it and then give it a new appraisal. So, which is good. Um, but yeah, a lot of critics at the time did not, did not, were not impressed by it, by the film at all. Um, and it was nominated for several Razzie awards further delegitimizing that stupid award show because I, I quote unquote award show. Cause uh, I think that to them, anything that is different is automatically bad. And I, and I hate that philosophy. Um, it was nominated for worst picture, worst director and worst actress. And I think this was the very first Razzies, if I'm not mistaken. It was. Uh, yes. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Uh, I don't really have any words for that because it's just silly, you know, especially how it's been reappraised since then. Now, I don't know. I, I, I dare them to give, try to give it Razzies now, but whatever. Yeah. I mean, and this is also the same, you know, awards quote unquote that, that, uh, gave Razzies to, uh, John Carpenter's the thing. As well, so like they really don't know what they're talking about. Yeah, um, I mean, lately they've been getting it right, but you know, back then it's, it's been their judgment was a little questionable. Yeah, um, it was um, fairly successful at the box office. Um, not not a huge massive hit. It debuted the same weekend as uh, the Empire Strikes Back. So the obviously- Empire Strikes Back. Yes, yeah, that was a cool. I I did not know that. That was, yeah, that was so interesting. Obviously, not going to dominate that weekend, um, but in the top 100 films of 1980, it came in number 12. So not bad. And the per screen average was more than The Empire Strikes Back because The Shining was on 
fewer screens. So that kind of boosted his average up. Yes. Um, it did like it was one of those Still, movies that's that, pretty impressive. Yeah, it was one of those movies that it did get a word of mouth and it ga- it did gain momentum uh, throughout the summer. Um, and as I said, after after several years, it did get uh, reappraised. Um, it was included in the National Film Registry um, as an important, uh, historically important film, um, and it was recognized by the American Film Institution uh, uh, Institute. Um, it was in the 100 Years 100 Thrills at number 29, uh, and in 100 Heroes and Villains, it was uh, Jack Torrance came in at number 25. And uh, here's Johnny came in as the number sixty-eight uh, in number sixty-eight in the one hundred movie quotes. Yeah, so there you go. It's uh, been uh, rightly so reappraised for the uh, the great work that it is. Um, and that's gonna pretty much wrap it up on the Shining. Um, unless you have anything else you want to discuss. I see. I, we pretty much covered all the all the big points. We did the. Uh, we talked about King. We talked about some of the wacky uh, theories about it. Um, yeah, I think we're pretty much done. It's uh, like I said. I was kind of late to the party with The Shining personally, but um, now it's one of it, it's been uh, rightfully so, I should say, uh, added to my uh, once a year uh, rotating catalog of films. Uh, so uh, it's. Uh, I mean, what else can we say about it? It's just Rick at, at his best. I mean, the, the guy doesn't have a, a long filmography, but you know, what he what he what he did turn out, what he did uh, produce, uh, we still talk about and dissect to this day. So that's got to count for something, right? Um, okay, so before we get to our uh, random movie generator, you can watch The Shining on uh, streaming services. One of these I haven't heard of. You can watch it on Fubo TV. Have you ever heard of Fubo TV? I have not. I know Quibi's dead, but I haven't heard of whatever you just. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I've never heard of. Uh, I've never heard of Fubo, but you can you can Fubo watch it on. I don't know. TV. Yep, it's a streaming service, uh, or you can watch it on Sling, uh, for free. Um, you can buy or rent it uh, for relatively good prices. Um, the uh digital copy on iTunes and Amazon for 4K is 9.99 which is not bad at all. Um yeah. and then I don't think there's a specific good physical like release of this. Like I, I mean there's a there's a Blu-ray and a I think there's a 4K as well, but like I don't think there's like a special edition that we should be talking about, is there? I don't think so. Uh the the only big release was I think last year with, with the 4K which was actually screened at, at, at Cannes. Um, but uh, no, uh, there's no like big like, collector set for The Shining. It was like the big release was the 4K last year. Yeah, I feel like it, it's a movie that like could, it definitely should have some sort of like big collector set. Like maybe throw in with Dr. Sleep in there and like a couple documentaries and things like that. Yeah. There was a documentary that Kubrick's daughter made like on the set. It's like a half hour documentary of like behind the scenes that she made like while she was on the set that I don't think I think it might be on the Blu-ray. Um, I'm not sure if it uh, if it made it to the 4K or not, but I think it's on the Blu-ray. I saw it a couple years ago. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. So it, it, I feel like there's it's just it's ripe for like a big special edition kind of kind of set. But as of now, it's just kind of like your basic yeah. Blu-ray or basic 4K uh, disc. All right. Um, that'll wrap up The Shining. 
Um, and now we're going to go ahead and bust out the random movie generator and see what we will be discussing on our next episode. We'll probably get to um, one more episode uh, before we get to our Christmas episode in December. So uh, this will be for what we will be discussing next week, or not next week, but on our next show. And then after that will be our whatever our Christmas episode ends up being. Um, but for now, let's see what right. our random movie generator will pick. Okay, and it has picked. All right, well, we're getting another dose of Jack Nicholson as we're going to go back to 1974 for Chinatown. Yeah. <laughs> All right, that's a great that's a great pick right there. It yeah. gives me a chance to re- I haven't seen it in a couple of years, so it gives me a chance to revisit it. Same here. I haven't seen it in a while. Uh, I've I own it and I, I but I like I bought it but never watched it. Um, but I've seen it before, so I just, I, it's been a while since I watched it. So I'm I'm looking forward yeah. to seeing it again. Yes, as am I. This is very exciting. Can't wait. So for that yeah, one. look. So uh, look out for our Chinatown episode. So make sure you watch that before our next episode. Um, please make sure to visit EssentialFilmsPodcast.com and uh, email us at EssentialFilmsPodcast at gmail.com. Like the Essential Films on Facebook and follow at Essential Films on Twitter. And please like, rate, and review this show on iTunes. Mark, what do you have to plug? Well, you can follow me and all my nonsense on Twitter at SportsGuy515. Uh, for perspective, you can also follow our other show on Twitter at FP Movie Podcast. Um, I mean, as far as the uh, theater situation goes here in the U.S., we're it's, we're pretty much done. I don't, I don't know if you, Adolfo, I'm not sure if they've released any news. I haven't really been keeping in touch with the uh, with the industry anymore since the shutdowns. But I know, I think Wonder Woman is still scheduled for Christmas. Although I feel like that's going to get changed. Because everything else got changed, like literally nothing else coming out this year except for like these little films here and there. But uh, as far as the big tent poles, I think that's the only one that's kind of still slated for 2020. But I doubt it's going to stay that way. Yeah, it's everything moved. I doubt. I doubt Wonder Woman will stay. I mean, Tenet was like the big experiment, and it kind of didn't do as well as they wanted it to do. Yeah. You know, um, and. You know, Disney tried that Mulan experiment that didn't really work that well for them. So I think everyone's just going to, all the big temple movies are going to move. And then every, like, everything that's not really a big temple movie is just going to go like the streaming only, uh, digital only, you know. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, it's very frustrating and I do not want to get into politics, but I'm just. It's, it is, dude. I'm that, just uh, saying. I actually canceled my AMC A list. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And they have that, that that weird clause when it comes to those subscription services where, like, if you cancel, you can't sign up again for X amount of months. So I I canceled mine, you know, beginning of this month. And I'd be eligible to sign up for it again in April, which is perfect because I think April is when the new Fast and the Furious comes out. And I think uh, the James Bond is also in April. But yeah, well, we'll for see. those movies. So we'll see. Yeah, we'll see where we're at in a it's in gonna about be so what. Like, like I said, you I know, think we discussed it on the last. Months. Yeah, I think we discussed it on the last show. Like, there's gonna be such a traffic jam of movies when everything is finally, like, when everything is finally safe to go out again. Like, it's gonna be like a traffic jam, and like everything is gonna come out because, like, not only the 2020 movies we never saw, but all the 2021 movies. You know what I mean? Like, it's just gonna be 
and and I guarantee you, like Warner Brothers is going to want to try to put Tenet back in the theaters, and Disney's going to want to try and put Mulan in the theaters. You know what I mean? Like, uh, it's just going to be it's going to be a mess, and it's all could have been prevented. That's all I'm going to say. It's, it's political isn't going to get on the show. <laughs> it could have all been prevented. We I mean, could uh, be out of this by now. That's all I'm saying. I, I, right. I, I, I feel like. I mean, instead of getting the traffic jam that we're kind of predicting, what's probably happening now, or if it hasn't happened already, they're just 2020 is basically just a lost year. So they're just moving everything down. What would have been 2021 is now 2022, and so on and so forth. Because like, how else can you do it? Like, you yeah. have to start releasing stuff like on Wednesdays to kind of just keep up with the demand of everything. We're still on schedule, you know. And so, the Oscars. And are that's assuming so that everything's normal. Assuming there's even an Oscars, like they're even talking about canceling it. I bet you they'll still have it, but it won't be the big, the big deal it is, right? Like, because they did the Grammys this year, right? And it wasn't, it, it just did it differently. Like, they're going to probably just have, like, people come out, announce stuff, maybe have, like, someone do a virtual thank you or whatever, you know? And, like, it won't, it'll, but I don't, it's not going to be what we're used to, but I bet you they'll still do it. And most of the movies, you're probably going to be able to stream, like, ahead of time, because what else are they going to do? You know what I mean? Um, I'll do my own a... AMC Best Picture Showcase for my house. Yeah, exactly. So. There you go. Do it twenty four hours. At least you can have your own bathroom and your own food. Exactly. <laughs> but anyway, yeah. Um, it, it's a weird time. Hopefully, our our uh, podcast helps you out in this weird time. But uh, yeah, everything's weird. But enjoy for now. Um, we're gonna talk about uh, Chinatown next time, and uh, I think that's about it. Um, any parting words? Vote. That's it. Yes, absolutely vote. Vote, 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 hashtag vote. Um, yes, absolutely. All right. Then uh, thanks, everyone. And uh, from Mr. Mark Espinoza, this is Dolfo Costa for The Essential Films. And we are sorry to differ with you, but you are the podcaster. You've always been the podcaster. We should know we've always been here. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>